Wendy Bick Mumble Snatch. Pennywise Stumblestick? Mumble More Dragon Voice? Smaug. Dangerous Guild Hall in New York City. I'm your host Shane. And I'm your host Ishan. And welcome to episode 120 of Total Party Thrill, a podcast for game masters and players where we discuss our campaigns in order to inspire yours. In this episode, we're reviewing the newest release for 5th edition Dungeons and Dragons, Xanathar's Guide to Everything. We'll walk you through it cover to cover and let you know whether it's worth adding to your collection. So before we get to that, we're recording out of order and releasing in different things, but uh, I guess this is the announcement that the Character Creation Forge Codex is available on Patreon. There's a link in the show notes. Um, you don't have to be a patron to access it. You just have to get the link through Patreon. Um, and thank you to Jeff from System Mastery Podcast. He was uh, instrumental in getting it done. Without him, it would still be a blank spreadsheet. I can't believe it happened so quickly. Yeah. <laughs> and there's a bit of Jeff flavor in there. Take that as you will. Yeah, he wrote some descriptions for the different builds that uh, some of them had me laughing quite a bit. So I was pretty happy with that. Uh, if you happen to notice any uh, errors or you want some clarifications, just let us know. It's a live document so we can just edit it and everything will be fixed. All right, so let's get into this. Um, this is the third new RPG source book from Wizards of the Coast for 5th edition. The first one was Sword Coast Adventures Guide two years ago. It was a campaign book set in the Forgotten Realms. The second was Volo's Guide, a monster manual focused on Faroon. And this year we get Xanathar's, which presents new player options, including dozens of new subclasses. And then it also features some tools for game masters that didn't make it into the Dungeon Master's Guide. So just like when uh, we reviewed Volo's Guide, right? It's got a character's name on the cover. So who is Xanathar? Uh, well, neither of us plays Forgotten Realms, but from what we can tell, he's a beholder, an insane beholder, although I guess that's redundant, who runs a thieves guild in Skullport beneath Waterdeep on the Sword Coast in Forgotten Realms. And this is explained in the book, right? Um, no. <laughs> Only on Forgotten Realms Wiki. <laughs> uh, what, now, also, what is up with all the goldfish imagery? Okay, yeah. So so the very first part of this book, right, is the cover, is either the standard cover has a beholder kind of looming over a goldfish in a crystal fishbowl, I guess. The other cover, the like special edition cover, is... A series of eyes and a couple goldfish images kind of in the center of it. It's actually, it's really neat. But those fish are important somehow because they're all over the place in this book. It turns out the fish is named Silgar and it is Xanathar's prized goldfish uh, pet. It's the only thing he cares about except for himself. Uh, And apparently being a normal goldfish, Silgar dies sometimes. And the entire Thieves Guild goes into a panic trying to find an identical goldfish so that Xanathar doesn't know that his pet has died because the last thing you want beneath a populated city is an angry beholder. So anyway, let's start our review with the covers. So we've got the alternative cover, which you can get at your friendly local gaming store, uh, with another cover from Hydro74, who also did the special cover for Volo's Guide last year. And Shane, you've got a copy in hand. I do. I bought it. How do you like it? I like this cover better than the Volo's Guide cover. Um, it, it's a little more fun to look at. 
and it's also a little more innocuous like the volos cover looked menacing because it had the mind flayer line art on it this one looks more whimsical um it doesn't look like a D book so it, i was reading it on the train it was fine yeah if you go for the standard cover it's a very cool painting from uh, jason rainville that has a uh, xanathar um it's a bit more obviously dungeons and dragons it also apparently features a ton of Xanathar secrets, but I don't know where you would have learned about Xanathar in 5th edition. Oh yeah, so because just like in Volo's Guide, there are little bits of flavored text throughout from the, I guess, quote-unquote... Uh, I guess, no, Xanathar's not the author, he just comments a he's, lot. He's the commenter, yeah. <laughs> uh, margin notes. Um, what did you think of them? I find Xanathar a little annoying, actually. He's not very funny. No, he has the sense of humor of a 15-year-old. Yeah, and a lot of his commentary is a bit anachronistic. Like, I'm not sure why a beholder from the Forgotten Realms is using terminology like cool. Yeah. Um, there's also a terrible pun about samurai and kensei. Hey, who can say? Anyway, so the book is divided into two parts. Uh, the first part is a bunch of new player options, and the second part is additional information for GMs on you know how to run a campaign. But it starts off with an introduction, and I actually really appreciated the information that we get in the introduction. First off, it starts off with a reiteration of rule zero, which is the DM gets to decide whatever rules they want, which I I guess is something that people needed to be reminded of at this point in the life cycle of, of 5e. Yeah, sure. <laughs> but then we get this section called 10 Rules to Remember. And uh, some of these are, uh, I'm guessing, a codification of rulings that Jeremy Crawford has made online or, or on Twitter, uh, things that people were confused about and, and how the rules work. But others of these seem to be the return of rules that were codified in earlier editions, but that were just sort of unspoken in 5th edition, and now they're definitely back. So, for example, we have the return of the specific beats general rule, or in 5th edition, exceptions supersede general rules. All it means is, hey, there's a general rule for how things work, and if there's a subclass or class feature that says you can do this and it goes against the general rule, well, then obviously you use the specific exception. And it's because a lot of people have complained that, well, there's no rule that says that you can't do this. Well, yeah, because there's a general rule that says, like... That's not how it works. Yeah. Yeah, yeah it, it's missing the corollary, which is that specific rules don't imply general rules. Well, I don't know, maybe three more years, we'll get that. Yeah, right. <laughs> uh, it also clarifies that you always round down. Uh, I assume, though, we have occasionally there are specific rules that say, hey, you round up. Right. So in those instances... Uh, there's also math for resistance and vulnerability. I mean, it's it's all really ticky-tacky stuff that I think I don't think is going to change anyone's perception of the game unless they were playing it wrong on internet forums. If you have a YouTube channel and you start talking about you know different ways to break the game, usually those depend on uh, an improper reading of the rules. I don't know any YouTube channels that are like that, Ishan. Oh, okay. Neither do I, because just pulling this out of nowhere right <laughs> and then we get a, just a reiteration of a few rules that are totally in the php but people tend to overlook bonus action spells how concentration works temp hp yeah but then we get into the nitty-gritty and i think the part of the book that people have been the most excited for which is the character options so this includes 31 new subclasses well uh, ish yeah four of them are reprinted from skag 
which is just for Adventurers League and filler. I mean, so there's like eight pages in here that are wasted if you've bought everything else in the line, which great. Then for each class, so each class will get at least one new subclass uh, that wasn't printed in Skag, so that's good. Um, and then at the beginning of each class, they also add new sort of characterization options for that class. So, for example, the Barbarian gets uh, a table of personal totems as well as a table of tattoos and a table of superstitions that are all ways to um, you know, add some characterization to your PC so that maybe you learn a little bit about its history or its personality or something. Yeah, and just like the bonds, flaws, and ideals tables in the PHB, you can pick from this, you can roll on it, or you can just totally ignore them. But then we actually get our first new subclass. So the first one for Barbarian is the Ancestral Guardian. Uh, we're not going to go like uh, class feature by class feature through the entire book because, I don't know, we might get sued. Uh, but we're going to sort of hit the highlights and the lowlights. So basically, the Ancestral Guardian gets um, spiritual ancestors that follow it around and help it. My spiritual ancestors would be nagging me all the time, kind of like Mulan, remember? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> this this reminds me of the Barbarian directly from Diablo, though. Diablo 3. That's one of the abilities of... It, you could just be followed around and they can be archers or they can be warriors or whatever. Uh, in here, they do a kind of cool thing where they can help reduce damage to your allies. And then at 14th level, that damage gets reflected back on the target. Yeah, it's interesting that uh, the Ancestral Guardian Barbarian really lives up to the Guardian name. Like they get essentially a marking mechanic. Like if you remember from 4th edition, if you attack someone, then that creature has disadvantage to attack anyone but you. And if they do attack someone else and deal damage, that ally has resistance to the damage. Yep. Uh, it's. I think we have to rebuild our bodyguard now. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, this is this is a good bodyguard. Though you pointed out that without having bear totems, like resistance to all damage while raging, it's very hard to stay alive as a mm -hmm. barbarian, mm -hmm. uh, especially if you're you know helping absorb damage from magical sources. Right, and you're giving a. Uh, all of the enemies are reason to just take you out first. Right. Then we've got the Path of the Storm Herald. Uh, this is a little bit like the Totem Barbarian in that there are multiple options that you can choose. Uh, so you get uh, an aura that extends 10 feet from you while you're raging. And then the, it has different effects depending on which terrain type you pick. There's Desert, Sea, and Tundra. So the thing that sort of jumps out at me here is... Very early on at third level, if you're picking the desert aura, uh, when you're raging, every single creature within 10 feet of you takes a bit of fire damage. Yes. Um, though you have to activate the aura every round with a bonus action, so you do have the option of not burning your allies to a, to a cinders. But yeah, I mean, not great. Yeah, although it does it does happen automatically when you rage. When you start raging. Yeah. 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 So that's I guess that's not so bad. Okay, my allies take a little bit of damage and and later they actually get resistance to the damage that you're dealing. But if you have allies who are for example at zero hit points next to you because you're the barbarian, you're the tough one. Yep. They've gone down and now you're going to kill the the bad guy. Uh that tiny bit of auto damage is going to deal immediate Death saving throw failures to your allies. Yeah, yeah, it's not that's not good. 
But what is good is C, the C terrain option. Yeah, these options are all tied to terrains, which I guess is supposed to be where your tribe or barbaric society comes from. Which storm you herald, I guess. Yeah. Uh, that, this doesn't quite align for me, but that's fine. Uh, yeah, it's mini lightning bolts. Uh, in your aura, you, you know, once per turn, you pick uh, an enemy and they take a bit of lightning damage. There's also Tundra, which I, I like Tundra a lot uh, because instead of dealing extra damage, you give every creature of your choice in your aura a few temp HP. But you can do that every single round. Right, and temp HP don't stack, but they do refresh on top of it. So it's kind of like helping all of your allies reduce the first few damage they take each round. Right. At higher levels, uh, you get resistances to the kinds of damage that you're dealing. And then at 10th level, your allies can also gain uh, that resistance as well if they're near you. And then at 14th level, you gain add-on effects to your aura. So your aura just gets powered up. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the one thing I don't like about Storm Herald is that it's not as modular as the Totem Barbarian. Like the Totem Barbarian, you can pick Bear at level 3 and then Wolf at level 6 and Eagle at level 14 or whatever. Right. Yeah. Uh, but here you pick Desert Seer, Tundra, and you can switch it uh, when you level up. So you can, you know, I guess decide at, at different levels what aura you want to have. But you're all, you're going to have all three options for Desert or all three options for Sea. Yeah, it's weird. I I mean, whatever. But I do really like the Path of the Zealot, because this is a truly unkillable barbarian, and I really like that. Truly, truly unkillable. Like, down to your very first, your third level ability is, it doesn't require any material components to resurrect you any longer. (laughs) Just because, you know, your god wants you to keep fighting. Exactly. I like also that you're getting abilities that... You're tanky, right, because you're hard to kill, but you're also getting abilities that make you dangerous as well. At level 3, once per turn, you deal an extra 1d6 plus half your barbarian level in necrotic or radiant damage. Yeah, so this is kind of borrowing from the divine strike of the um, cleric, the martial clerics, but it doesn't scale sort of with more dice. It scales with a linear... Uh, progression of added damage which is fine Mm -hmm. and it's nice that it's guaranteed damage because it's when you hit you apply it right Uh, but the really important feature here is at level 14 how do we explain this uh when you're raging you can't die you just basically well no at 14 you can't at 15 you can't (laughs) right (laughs) right at 14 if you're if you're knocked unconscious you will you will die but basically it lets you ignore the effects of being at zero hit points uh, including death saving throws, or you make the death saving throws, but it doesn't matter how many you fail. Right. the The effect doesn't doesn't occur until your rage ends, and it only occurs if you're still at zero hit points when your rage ends. So as long as you've finished the fight uh, and have gotten a hit point back when your rage ends, you wipe all of those death saves and you're fine. Yeah, I think pretty much every zealot barbarian needs to take magic initiate or something for just a cure wound, just anything to gain HP. Well, you can't do that while raging, so it would have to be paladin oh. so you can lay on hands on yourself. Or uh, multi-fighter for second wind. Right. Done. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, that makes this a very, very dangerous combatant, right? Like, you aren't going to be able to bring him down without a concerted effort. Um, I think that is the type of um, iconic ability that's worth waiting for, whereas general theme of some of the subclasses in here is like, they're just not that great. 
and the flavor doesn't sort of outweigh the the weight to get there and the cost of the things you're giving up. So um, this is one where the high-level ability is really, really cool and it's mm-hmm. worth waiting for. It is also a reason to always pack the sleep spell no matter what level you are. Yeah. Because it's insta-kill a zealot barbarian. <laughs> well, insta-kill a zealot barbarian that Who should have been cr- gone a long time ago. <laughs> Who has the lowest number of hip? Oh, I rolled a zero on 5d8. You're right. still dead. <laughs> Unless you have uh, persistent rage, and then right. falling unconscious does not under rage. All right, so bards get a few tables to help define different aspects of their character. Uh, it can be their defining work, the uh, most important, their magnum opus, essentially. Uh, It can be the instrument that they're known for using or a huge embarrassment, one of the lowest points of their careers. So in those, in those defining tables, I really like the embarrassments table. Um, I I think that's actually a more interesting approach to flaws than flaws. Mm. Uh, Because this is like, it's building the story of your bard, telling a little bit about what, you know, a thing that they have done in their past and also how they reacted to messing up right um and and tells you like whatever you're embarrassed about also speaks to what's important to you right so it's it's actually it's a really clever way of of getting a lot of characterization in like 20 words yeah and i'll say uh the write-ups for many of these tables uh, consistently throughout this book are um very witty or evocative or creative like you know, an embarrassment you could roll or pick. Oh, the time when your comedic song, Big Tom's Hijinks, uh, which, by the way, you thought was brilliant, didn't go over too well with Big Tom. Or, like, the first and last public performance of Mert, Man About Town. Uh, you must assume that there are many private performances of that. Right. <laughs> <laughs> uh, there's also a section on uh, choosing a muse, whether that is nature, love, or conflict. But then we get three new bardic colleges. Yeah, and this is, um, well, we should have probably said this at the beginning, but these all were unearthed arcana, and I don't want to try and get into what's new and what's different between what was unearthed arcana and what's in the final version. I've mostly forgotten. Yeah, exactly. I'm not going to go do that research. You probably shouldn't bother with it either. So we'll just take a look at what's in the book and talk about that. And it starts with College of Glamour, uh, and then you get College of Swords and College of Whispers. So the College of Glamour is uh, pretty bards. I guess. I Now, this happens with the bards often, I think, in 5th edition, where you get a mechanic that relies on you using your inspiration dice. But those are pretty finite. Like uh, even after level five, you're probably maxing at five per short rest. So I don't like mechanics that um, require you to use your inspiration dice, but don't let you do something much better than their normal use. Yeah. So mental inspiration, I feel like falls in this category. So you can use a bardic inspiration to uh, give temp HP to a number of creatures uh, near you, and then they can move their speed without provoking opportunity attacks neat it's kind of warlordy but it's not like they get to make an extra attack or anything like that i'd rather honestly sort of like farm out these inspiration dice to people or for example uh college of lore and use cutting words right you also get some abilities to like charm and command and those types of things which 
frankly, in 5th edition are of dubious value. Yeah, it's something you could probably do with expertise in persuasion, which you also get at 3rd level. Right, or, you know, just a spell. Yeah, a 1st level charm person. Right. Yeah. I do really like Mantle of Majesty at 6th level, though, which is essentially you get 10 free castings of the command spell. So you can cast command, and then uh, once each round for the next minute, you can cast command again. Again, is it the most useful thing? I mean, it may be in combat, although I think I'd rather be, you know, shooting someone or casting actual real spells. Yeah. I don't know. I'm not super impressed with glamour. Uh, then swords, I'm also, also not impressed with. Yeah, I think I would just stick with College of Valor. Yeah, you get some bonus proficiencies, uh, medium armor and the scimitar. The scimitar is exactly the same as the short sword, which you are already proficient in. You're getting a flavor proficiency. What a waste. <laughs> Whatever. I'm, Ugh. well, you, I mean, you get other you get other third level abilities, right? Yeah, you get a choice between only two fighting styles. Yeah, dueling or two weapon <laughs> fighting. <laughs> Blade Flourish is good, though. Complicated. Your walking speed increases by 10 feet. And then when you hit a creature with a weapon, you can choose one of three Blade Flourishes. There's Defensive Flourish, which, of course, requires you to use a Bardic Inspiration die uh, to deal some extra damage, but then you also add it to your AC. That's a pretty good use of an Inspiration die. You can do Slashing Flourish, which again, deals extra damage and deals damage to another creature uh, adjacent to you. Yep. And then Mobile Flourish lets you deal extra damage and move. Fine. And then they get a little better. You get extra attack in this one, just like College of Valor, and then your Blade Flourishes get a bit better at Actually, no, they don't get better at 14. You just can use them more often. Yeah, I mean, it's it's kind of mixing a little bit of Battlemaster and a little bit of Bladesinger mm-hmm. into one because um, of the Bladesinger cantrips, right? Um, which is fine. I just, yeah, I, I don't know that I would ever choose this over Valor because I think Combat Inspiration is just a better use of your dice. Yeah, and, your then, and then at level 14, being able to like cast and use your weapon. Right. Yeah. College of Whispers is a very flavorful, but again, not particularly powerful subclass. It's the scary bard. Yeah, it's like the hiding in the dark bard, I guess. Yeah, I think this is maybe supposed to be the like the dark sun bard who specializes in poisons and is very spooky. Uh, so you can expend inspiration dice to deal extra psychic damage when you make a, a weapon attack. You basically get a psychic sneak attack, but you've got to expend inspiration dice in order to do it. Mantle of Whispers at 6th level, though, is a pretty flavorful and potentially useful ability, especially if you're into spycraft. So when a humanoid dies within 30 feet of you, you can capture its shadow, and that lasts until uh, you take a long rest. So you can use the shadow one time, and when you do, it turns into a disguise that looks exactly like the person who died, except that they don't look dead anymore it lasts for an hour or you can end it as a bonus action but while you're in that disguise you have access to all the information that they would have normally shared with someone that they were on friendly but casual terms with it's enough that you can pass yourself off as them but it's a really interesting infiltration ability i like it much better than i think it's level nine for assassin gets imposter yeah it's better than imposter um for a six level ability though, like extra attack you're gonna use in every single encounter. 
this you're going to use a couple times a campaign. Oh, again, is it stronger than the PHB options? No. No. (laughs) All right, so let's move on to Cleric. So Cleric also gets the three characterization tables. It gets a Temple, Keepsake, and Secret. And again, Secret is another one of those very evocative things that I like better than Flaw um, because it's, you know, could be a negative or a positive, but it tells you something about the character itself and not just like a broad trait of how you're going to play it. Yeah, I love, you know, even though you can work divine magic, you have never truly felt the presence of a divine essence within yourself. That is so realistic. And also, like, to your point about it not being a flaw, that's neither good nor bad, but that it's something to struggle with. Yeah, exactly. So there are two divine domains in here, Forge and Grave. Uh, we liked the Forge a lot in Unearthed Arcana. I actually thought it was a bit too powerful in Unearthed Arcana. Now I feel like it straddles a weird line between Wizards of the Coast not really deciding what magic items are in 5th edition. Mm. Um, later in the book, there's going to be a lot of pages devoted to magic items and even some guidelines on how many you should give. And yet the Cleric has an ability that gives a plus one bonus like magical enhancement bonus basically to armor or weapons but only if it's already non-magical yeah so if people are toting around plus two weapons and armor that's a useless ability exactly um i maybe it becomes useful but it's it, it just i don't know it it seems weird hmm. so you get some uh fire related bonus spells uh, but also knowledge related right you could identify you got searing smite heat metals nice magic weapon uh yeah you get the creation stuff too like fabricate mm-hmm. and um creation but animate objects is in there which i find weird yeah i'm not really sure how it, it fits i guess although it is a good spell you get heavy armor and smith's tools now smith's tools may seem dumb but later in this book we'll get into some interesting options for tool proficiencies yeah, and then your Divine Strike is just worse because it deals fire damage right, instead, instead of, of radiant, radiant like all the other Divine Strikes. Mm-hmm. So, Although actually, isn't Trickery, isn't that Poison Damage, which is also garbage? Um, I Maybe, but yeah, I mean, yeah. Radiant is just better. Oh, far better. At 6th level, though, you do get Resistance to Fire Damage, and if you're wearing Heavy Armor, a plus 1 bonus to AC. So at low levels, Forge is basically Resistance to Fire plus 2 to AC, as long as you're like, um, I'm going to take the AC bonus. Yeah. Uh, and then your kind of capstone ability at 17 is immunity to fire damage, which is great. It puts you basically on par with most monsters at that level. And then also you get resistance to bludgeoning, piercing, and slashing damage when wearing heavy armor. But only non-magical. Yeah, which I think is at that level sort of like, eh, there are a lot of creatures that have magical attacks. Yeah, or you're only resistant to part of the damage from an attack. Mm-hmm. So, whatever. Now, a lot of people are very excited about the Grave Domain Cleric. I think I'm looking at this like, uh, I don't know, maybe like it's a, a good enabler, but I'm not I'm not really seeing it as like a particularly amazing class to play on its own. I don't think it looks fun is the problem. It's like, like I, I think people are very excited about its Channel Divinity Path to the Grave, which basically lets you um, automatically double the damage against a target, but you don't get many Channel Divinities in a day you have to line it up for another character to do the damage and like great that's why we brought you you know yeah i mean it could be you but you don't really have 
that many options for dealing a ton of damage. It seems like it's going to be a strong multi-class for rogues. Yeah, or paladins. Or paladins, mm-hmm. yeah, and like... Oh, wait, how about, okay, paladin, we'll get to warlock as well. Paladin plus warlock with new invocations plus this dip. <laughs> I'll take that. Great. <laughs> so, <laughs> also some rogues so that you can stand there, use your action, they still don't notice you, and then you assassinate, I guess. But like, you shouldn't judge a, a subclass on, a, on a, its potential for, you know, a multi-class. Yeah, and its capstone ability is really bad. Mm-hmm. When an enemy dies within 60 feet of you, you can heal an ally up to its hit dice, um, which, you know, is like a number between 0 and, like, 26. So, fine, I guess. Right, like, how often are enemies dying in front of you, and, like, that amount of healing at that level is not particularly useful. So, you can only do it to yourself or an ally once per round. Like, you can't do it again until the start of your next turn. So, it's not a huge amount of... HP, um, and in a lot of like boss fights and those types of things, if you're facing solo monsters, it's totally useless. Mm-hmm. Next, we have Druid. And Ishan, I know you're a fan of Druids in general. I-, I am probably less so. I've become more of a fan of Druids ever since we made a commitment to try to use some Druids in the Forge because we never did because right. their 20th level capstone is so amazing anyway. Yeah. Uh, yeah, but I've been playing several druids. So the options you get for more backstory info, your treasured item, your guiding aspect, which is like a philosophy kind of thing. Yeah, yeah, it's uh, it's your hippie belief that you experienced while on a mushroom trip. <laughs> yep, that sounds right. <laughs> uh, or your mentor. Some, some of the ideas for mentors are interesting. Mm-hmm. Uh, actually, some of the ideas for guiding aspect are interesting, too. Um, just the way they're they're written and framed, um, but I, I do like like with mentor. There's the the mentors appear to you only in visions. You've never actually met them before. Yeah, I like that a lot, uh, especially because one of the druid circles that we're looking at is the circle of dreams. Those are druids that have a strong tie to the Feywild. Yep, and it's basically a healer druid. So you get a pool of d6s equal to your druid level, and as a bonus action, you can roll up to half of them and then heal someone, that uh, number of hit points. And they refresh on a long rest. The level 6 ability I find pretty... Basically a ribbon ability is... camp. It makes camping easier. Yeah, <laughs> yeah like it hides, your, hides the light from your campfire. Uh, you also get at will teleport. Well, mm. a limited yeah, number of yeah. five times per day. Yeah, yeah. Which, which is uh, that's a good number, though. Uh, yeah, it's a you get five free misty steps per day. Uh, okay, well, it's wisdom modifier number. It's, yeah, and you're druid, so it's five, and it's sixty feet, so it's <laughs> it's a little better than misty step. And then your capstone, well, not your druid capstone, but the 14th level, the highest ability that comes in this subclass is Walker and Dreams, which gives you the dream scrying and a very limited version of teleportation circle. Oh, a terrible version of teleportation circle. It only lets you go back to your last campsite. Which is, uh, what if your last campsite was in the middle of that horrible dungeon? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, it's not good. Also, if you haven't taken a long rest on the plane that you're on, it does nothing. Right. Yeah, it, it's flavorful. It's not good. 
Yeah. Also, if you teleport back to that campsite and now it, it was great and now it turns out it's terrible, you can only use that once per long rest. So guess you're stranded. Exactly. <laughs> then next we have Circle of the Shepherd, which is a conjurer who heals. Yeah, it's the summoner druid. I do really like, and actually this is probably a dip that I will take on uh, quite a few characters. At second level, you can uh, speak, read, and write Sylvan, and beasts can understand your speech, and you can decipher their noises and their motions. So you basically get speak with animals at will. Yeah. So the main ability that you get here is the ability to conjure like a spiritual animal that gives some benefit to your allies. Um, It's effectively an aura that you can move around um, and the I think the highlight here is Bear Spirit, which gives temp HP to your allies. Yeah, the Hawk lets you uh, give your allies advantage on attack rolls. And the Unicorn gives you... when Whenever you cast a healing spell, it also heals um, any allies within the aura by a number equal to your Druid level. So it, it's actually a good little burst of healing. At level 6, your summoned creatures get quite a bit stronger, actually. Finally, their attacks count as magical. Right, which is a big problem with the ranger's companion Mm -hmm. as well as any conjuration summoner um, thus far is that you can't overcome non-magical resistance. Right, unless your gym is nice enough to let you summon creatures that can cast magic spells. Right, but adding the hit points and then adding in your spiritual uh, summon, like... That gives you quite a bit of resilience for your summoned creatures. So that's that's actually really good. I mean, that makes them useful. Uh, and at 10th level, it actually just directly heals your uh, summoned creatures when they're near your spirit totem. So, like, in addition to the effect it grants anyway, it's also directly healing them. The 14th level ability is weird, but then again, most 14th level abilities for druids are weird and not particularly good. Uh, if you drop to zero, then the Conjure Animals spell gets cast at ninth level and, you know, four beasts of challenge rating two or lower protect you, which is like a polar bear. Four polar bears protect you. They don't heal you. They just make sure people don't attack your body, I guess. Yeah, and your spirit totem is gone, so they're not getting any of the benefits for from the rest of like your conjuration stuff. So it, they're not going to do much yeah. to a level 14 character. The spell lasts for an hour, but you're going to die in probably five rounds because you'll bleed out. So <laughs> I guess they just hang out. They just continue hanging out because no concentration is required. Well, they yeah, I guess I mean they attack your enemies, so like I guess it gives you something to do Even after you dead. die. Yeah, <laughs> so that's like cool from a player perspective, but kind of dumb from a character perspective. And then after that, this is the first time where we get a bunch of new information for either the player or the GM. A bunch of tables that don't have to do specifically with subclass information. So there is quite a few pages on learning beast shapes. Essentially, it's many people have complained that, that the druid can turn into any creature that it, quote, has seen before. Uh, but the question is, you know, how do you know what you've seen before? If you're creating an eighth level druid, uh, what creatures have you noticed out in the wild? Um, so this gives you a bunch of different tables for different types of terrain and what kind of creatures you may have seen in that type of terrain. Yeah, so what this amounts to is basically just 
a collection of all the options and their CRs for you in a form that's easier to search through than the monster manual. Yeah, but not as easy to search through as some websites that compile this data. Right. So they, I mean, they, they dedicated two and a half pages to stuff that is readily available with a quick Google search on the internet. We'll see a lot more of that later in this book. Now we're on to fighters. So the fighter gets a heraldic sign, instructor, and a signature style. Um, again, I think these are pretty evocative. Uh, the signature style is, is another one where it tells you something good and bad about your character, right? Like, if your style is brutal, your attacks rain down like hammer blows, meant to splinter bone or send blood flying. Mm -hmm. And I like that we're getting examples of heraldic signs, because lots of times you're making a character, you're like, oh, I'm part of a noble family, what does my heraldry look like? Like, what is reasonable for heraldry? So at least we have some uh, examples here. And then the new archetypes that we get are the arcane archer, the cavalier and the samurai. So first off, uh, the arcane archer, which I hate. Because your signature ability is arcane shot, which lets you do some, you know, magical trick arrows. And we'll get to those in a second. But you can use this ability two times before uh, they recharge in a short rest. And only two times. And at no point in this subclass do you gain the ability to use this more than two times before a short rest right at uh at 15th level you regain one if you have zero uh similar to th i think the same level ability for the battlemaster fighter yeah, i think you're right what this means is that during the first two rounds of each combat you can use an arcane shot option and then after that your subclass is 100 percent useless uh, and then at level 15 sometimes you'll be able to use it one the first round of combat and before it's useless yeah, and for me, this I, we'll talk about this a little later, but this highlights a problem with 5th edition that's becoming more apparent uh, throughout this book is that abilities that are gated on a short rest, you should really have every time you go to fight. Mm -hmm. um, and because short rest is one hour, you don't. Uh, short rest should be 10 minutes. Well, the game is built around two-ish encounters before you can short rest, which sure. means that the game is built around like not having access to a lot of your abilities for half your fights. Yeah, exactly. So like I'm an arcane archer half the time and the other half I'm an archer, just a worst archer. <laughs> yeah. Like I'm, I'm worse than a battle master archer. So like we said, some of the arcane shot options are interesting. I won't go through all of them, but there are eight of them, one for each school of magic. Unfortunately, the DCs are intelligence-based, just like the Eldritch Knight. And as every good Eldritch Knight knows, you should be avoiding spells, for the most part, that have saving throws. Uh, here, you don't have the option. Most of these require your target to make a save. Yep. I mean, they all give you um, 2d6 extra damage and then some effect with a save. At 18th level, this becomes 4d6 damage, which, sure, fine, Um I mean, you have four attacks. You're only getting to do this twice, so whatever. Yeah, and not even in the same round because you can only use Arcane Shot once per turn. Right. Um, I would rather have Battlemaster Dice, yep. which I can also always use to just deal more damage. And you can also buy more of with a feat. Yeah. Then on to the Cavalier, which is ostensibly built around mounted combat but doesn't require you to have a mount. I don't understand it, to be honest, uh, how it's built around mounted combat. Um, it gets a marking mechanic, 
which is like an actual mark. It's called marking. Right. But yeah. it's, it's worse than the previous marking mechanic we saw for barbarian, which is not called marking. Right. Um, and then like you get some whatever kind of bonuses to riding. Uh, if you fall out of your saddle, you, you fall on your feet. Okay. Otherwise you're basically a tank. Yeah, you absolutely are because. At level 7, you get the ability to prevent some attacks to a creature within 5 feet of you, which, of course, is supposed to be your mount, but doesn't need to be your mount. Unfortunately, it is limited to a number of uses per day based on your constitution modifier, which, let's be honest, is going to be 2 times per day. Yeah. Maybe 3, but probably 2. Yeah. Uh, and then, But then at level 10, you get... A- Honestly, it got a crazy ability. Hold the line is creatures provoke an opportunity attack from you when they move five feet or more while within your reach. And if you hit with that opportunity attack, you reduce your speed to zero. Yep. So one of the big differences between 5th edition grid combat and 4th edition grid combat is that in 5th edition, you can run circles around an enemy as long as you're not leaving their reach and they can't stop your repositioning. Right. Um, the Polar Master feat allows you to hit them as they enter your reach, but still doesn't do anything if they're within it. Hold the Line lets you make an opportunity attack whenever they move within your reach. Right, so you're just going to get a reach weapon. Your reach will be 10 squares all around you, and you are this giant obstacle right in the middle of the map. Yeah, which I understand is a way of getting opportunity attacks with a lance, I guess. Um, but it actually just makes you a great polearm fighter. Yeah, like, uh, okay, so they're 10 feet away from you, they're in your reach, they try to move adjacent to you, so you hit them with an opportunity attack, and now they're stuck with no movement 10 feet away from you. Right. Um, at 15th level, you get Ferocious Charge, which every round you can knock an opponent prone if you move more than 10 feet. It doesn't require a mount. So again, you are an incredible, like, take-and-hold combatant, right? You charge forward, knock them on their ass, and then hold the line <laughs> as your allies move up with you. Why do you need a mount? I mean, if you think about it, you're going to run out of opportunity attack abilities, right? Because you can only take one reaction per round. So as soon as someone's triggered one, that's it. True. That's it. True. Until you get to 18th level, and then you can take one reaction for opportunity attacks per enemy. Yeah, this is essentially uh, 3rd edition combat reflexes. Yeah, yeah. Which is cool. I mean, again, that's a very good tank. Don't think it's a cavalier. Yeah, this is a dwarven defender. Okay, now we have to rebuild the dwarven defender as a cavalier. just a cavalier, yeah. (laughs) On a riding dog. Also, in the flavor text, it mentions that they are equally comfortable uh, leading a cavalry charge or exchanging repartee at a state dinner. There is nothing in here that gives you any ability at all for social aspects. You have the option of choosing the performance or persuasion skill, or you could take animal handling. (laughs) Boom. I would think you should probably take animal handling. Yeah, if you're going to be on a mount. Yeah. Now, I understand that they didn't want to require you to have a mount. I get that. I actually wouldn't want a class that did have to have a mount because there's still not really anything in this book that makes it easy to keep your mount alive. Right. But the name is a bit of a misnomer. Mm Mm-hmm. So next is the samurai, whose name is not a misnomer. No, no. This is definitely a... 
elegant noble who also fights with a sword. So the samurai also gains a bonus proficiency, um, basically the same options as the cavalier, just not animal handling. Which is weird because samurai ride horses a lot. <laughs> yeah. <I've, laughs> you, you know? like. So at third level, you get fighting spirit, which unfortunately is also limited to just three times per long rest. It's this strange trend in this entire book where there are these long rest mechanics. And so it's like, oh, that's a really neat ability, but oh, I get to use it two to four times in an entire adventuring day which is supposed to be six to eight encounters yeah yeah i it's it is cool though um so you get advantage on all of your attack rolls for that round as well as gaining five temp hp which scales with your level uh, loosely yeah and you know at higher levels you're gonna have three maybe four attacks and all of them having advantage that's really great but that is uh, that's three rounds per day in which you're doing something cool yep then at level seven you get elegant courtier which is fine it lets you add your wisdom bonus to persuasion checks um it seems kind of wasteful the purple dragon knight already just gets expertise on persuasion so Mm -hmm, which is going to add eventually a plus six no matter what your stats are yeah and so it's like slightly worse version of that with different math i i guess we could have just conserved mechanics Although you do get proficiency in wisdom saving throw, so that makes it straight up better than Purple Dragon Knight's 7th level ability. Unless you already had wisdom saving throws, in which case you get intelligence or charisma, which is great that it's not just, you know, if it's a duplicate, it's a waste. I think this is the first time that we've actually seen uh, this kind of wording like, on a saving throw. Yeah. Um, it's codified with skills. If you get a skill that you're already proficient in, you can choose another skill. But uh, I think the rogue, for example... Um, gets proficiency in wisdom saving throws uh, at a higher level. And if you've already finagled a way to get that, it just doesn't do you any good. Yeah. Uh, 10th level, you'll get, uh, you'll regain a use of fighting spirit if you don't have one at the start of combat, which given that fighting spirit, you know, is, is a pretty momentum shifting ability. Like, I don't know. I think that's probably enough. And then at 15, you'll get rapid strike, uh, which lets you. Uh, forego advantage on an attack in order to make another attack which is almost always going to be a good deal yeah yeah especially because you can activate it with fighting spirit so like you're using a two-handed weapon you can just trade in from four to five attacks i like this because it's one of the few times in this book when you get what seems like a totally new mechanic Uh, it's another thing that interacts with advantage in a way that is uh, positive and beneficial. Um, I like being able to say, okay, I can take two attacks with advantage, or I could take an attack with advantage and then make two additional attacks. And you do a, you do a little bit of math on there. Also, like flavor-wise, it's like, all right, I'm not going to take the sure thing. I'm going to swing very quickly, not as accurately, but it's quite possible that like I, I do two huge hits. Yeah, yeah. And also, if you're a multi-paladin, <laughs> right. So then at 18th, uh, speaking of new mechanics or new twists on old mechanics, uh, you get another way to survive with zero hit points. And I think this is like the third way in this book already. Yeah, although it's not quite as good as the Zealot Barbarian, because if you end up with three death saving throw failures, you die. Yeah, I I don't even want to go into the details of it. It's just another way to prolong death. Um, This is kind of becoming commonplace. Every single class has one of these, Mm -hmm. I feel like. 
It does make Monk of the Long Death look more reasonable. It does, yeah. <laughs> Speaking of Monk. So Monks get uh, their um, descriptive things are the monastery, monastic icon, and master. These are fine, though a bit ascetic. So first up, we've got Way of the Drunken Master, which is exactly what it sounds like, except that you don't actually have to, like in third edition, imbibe alcoholic beverages. You actually don't even have to be drunk. You sometimes just can act like it if you prefer. Mm -hmm. Uh, It basically lets you get more flurry of blows. That's basically what the mechanics amount to, is like more flurry. Fine. Yeah, um, at third level, you kind of get the mobile feat. When you use Flurry, you can disengage, uh, and then your walking speed increases by 10 feet. Tipsy Sway at sixth level, I like a lot. Uh, You get a kip up, so you can spend five feet of movement uh, instead of half your movement to stand from prone, and you can spend a key point as a reaction to cause an attack that misses you to hit another creature uh, within five feet of you, uh, just not the attacker. So you're only going to use that when it actually uh, is going to benefit you. And it's nice to be able to take like a, a big wild attack that missed you, especially if you're like using the dodge action or something like that, because you're a monk and make it hit an, uh, one of their allies. And it's nice that it only costs one key point, which a lot of good monk abilities are like, Oh, burn five key points in yeah. order to do this. Yep. So drunkard's luck lets you reroll an attacker saving throw for two key points here's what i really like about this ability is it cancels disadvantage right which means that if you have advantage from any other source if you have advantage from any other source it's no longer being canceled out right so you just have advantage right because disadvantage doesn't stack advantage doesn't stack and i kind of love i kind of love the idea of the drunkard being like hold on i'm gonna make a trick shot okay it means that even if you don't have that advantage, you can you your odds of like closing your eyes and and standing on your head and throwing a dart at a bullseye are exactly the same as like the sober guy who's standing there and actually looking at the target. Right, exactly. And then the capstone for this that seventeen intoxicated frenzy is terrible. It's really bad. Um, it's it lets you make up to five flurry of blows attacks, but they all have to be different targets, so it's dumb. Yeah, the entire point of making multiple attacks is to focus fire because it doesn't matter if creatures each take a little bit of damage. As long as they've got one hit point, they're just as dangerous to you. Then we have the Way of the Kensei, which is um, vastly improved over what I hated from Unearthed Arcana. Mm -hmm. Um, You still get Kensei weapons. You get some abilities that are tied to key. Yeah, it's nice that you can choose the longbow as a Kensei weapon because we don't really have a lot of um, bow-wielding monks in D&D, even though you really should. Um, they still have that ability, Sharpen the Blade, which lets them spend key to give a plus up, up to plus three bonus um, to their weapon. Which is really something that you should be doing every time you're in combat, right? It's three key points, just burn three key points to get a plus three weapon. And then you also, at 17, get the ability to um, re-roll a missed attack roll. And you can do that one time on each of your turns, and there's no limit to the number of times you can use it in a day. Right. So I think Kensei actually ends up being a pretty strong contender for people who want to play a monk. Yeah, it's it's 
better than open hand or it's it's comparable to open hand i don't think it's better but it yeah you're not gonna feel like you're not a monk if you use it drunken master i think is probably a waste yeah which is unfortunate because it has some cool abilities but there's just no point in sticking with it and then way of the sun soul is reprinted from sword coast adventures guide uh yeah it's a hadoukens you can shoot some fire instead of uh your flurry of blows right so Paladin has uh, personal goals, symbol, and nemesis. I love nemesis. Oh, and temptation. I forgot about temptation. So yeah, I like nemesis too. I think nemesis is um, is a cool way of introducing an enemy for your GM, so it lightens the load. The only thing I don't like about the list of temptations is I wish there were seven. Yeah, there's they're only not six. exactly the deadly sins, but they're they're close. And then there are two new oaths. The Oath of Conquest, which is, I guess, in keeping with the, the DMG, it's a, a potentially evil paladin. It's, a, it's not a nice paladin. It's also not a very good paladin. Yeah. Um, it, it, it has the problem that all paladins have, which is that the, their auras do not stack up against the uh, aura of devotion right you really need to look straight at that level seven ability and see what you're getting rather than immunity to charm right uh, in this instance what you're getting is a menacing aura if a creature's already frightened of you its speed is reduced to zero and it takes some psychic damage which is fine because you have so many ways um to generate the frightened effect you have your channel divinity conquering presence which takes an action uh and gives them a wisdom saving throw uh and then you get all of these great spells as an oath of the conquest that cause frighten don't you uh fear at ninth level exactly two ways to cause frighten yeah uh neither of which you should be using because your other channel divinity is guided strike which gives you a plus 10 to uh roll you're about to miss uh and also why are you casting fear at fifth level you get hold person just crit them yeah so your Aura of Conquest is a total waste. And also the Capstone ability, Invincible Conqueror. Um, it's uh, fine, I guess. Resistance to all damage. Um, you can make an additional attack as part of the attack action, and you crit on a 19 or 20. Of course, it suffers from the same drawback that many of the Paladin Capstones do, which is it costs an action to actually turn this feature on, which means you're losing a bunch of damage already. And you're still only doing it once per long rest, so I hope you saved it for the right time. The Oath of Redemption, though, turns out to be far more interesting than expected. Your Oath spells are amazing. They're super good. Yeah, you get Hold Person, Counterspell, Hypnotic Pattern. These are all fight-ending spells. Oh, Hold Monster and Wall of Force. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, you also get a very useful aura at 7th level. Um, your channel divinities aren't as combat valued, I think. But, I mean, you can get a plus five to your persuasion checks for ten minutes. And that's a straight-up stacking bonus with everything. Yeah. Um, though, And your rebuke the violent is just thorns, which is kind of nice. So when you see a creature deal, dam- deal damage, you can force a save, and then they take their damage right back in their face. It's very flavorful for the Redemption Paladin, which is really, I, I just want, why can't everyone just get along? I just want us all to be friends. It, and it gets rid of that uh, problem that happens sometimes with, like, 
alpha strike enemies right uh mm. if you if you've ever been assassinated as a player you'll know that it would be really nice if your your assassin died in the process <laughs> or that grave cleric yeah <laughs> uh your aura is uh, also quite good it lets you tank the damage away um, and given that you're generally not going to be making a lot of attacks as a redemption paladin, like you can use your action to lay on hands yourself. So you can sort of just mitigate damage from your tanks and, and soak it yourself. Mm-hmm. Although you're going to want to be careful because paladins are often class cannons. Yeah. At level 15, uh, you regain a decent number of hit points if you end your turn in combat with fewer than half your hit points, which is great. Yeah, I mean, that actually makes your aura <laughs> incredibly strong because now you're probably healing that hit right back. Yeah, it's a certainly a net benefit uh, in terms of HP loss. Yeah. And then at level 20, you actually have a, a really good capstone for a paladin, which is super rare. Yeah, and this is neat because this is the only um, capstone paladin ability that doesn't get triggered. It's just on. Mm-hmm. So you get resistance to all damage dealt by other creatures. That's their attacks, their spells, really anything that they do that deals damage, you have resistance. And then whenever a creature hits you with an attack, they take half the damage they dealt you as radiant. Okay, so you're super tanky uh, and people want to avoid you, but you're also taking the hits from other people and then rehealing that damage. Great. Right. What's the drawback? Well, if you attack a creature or cast a spell on it or you deal damage to it, then... The feature turns off, but only with respect to that single creature. Right. So you get to go around harvesting all the minions in the fight (laughs) while no one can touch you. (laughs) And just resisting all the damage from the BBEG and soaking all the damage that they're actually dealing to all your allies. Yeah, yeah. It's it's a really neat take on a tank. It's a spellcaster who tanks. Yeah, now we need to rebuild a new pacifist. Mm-hmm. I didn't kill them. They killed them by trying to kill me. Mm-hmm. I can't help it if I'm sharp. So then on to the ranger, which is not the new ranger, the revised ranger. Mm-hmm. This is uh, still based on the PHB version. These are new subclasses. And I hate to say it, but we still, even with three more subclasses, we still don't have a great ranger. Oh, we're so close, though. So very close. Okay, so first off, you get uh, some new options for your view of the world, your homeland, and your sworn enemy. Yeah, these are, again, I think they're fine. I, none of these are particularly evocative for me, mm-hmm. but um, I struggle with ranger flavor in general, so... Yeah, I know. Is it Aragorn? Is it Legolas? Right. What is it supposed to be? But, speaking of flavor, the first ranger archetype up is the gloom stalker yeah i i don't like this name i thought the deep stalker was cooler the underdark ranger but fine gloom the iconic ability for the subclass is actually umbral sight i think which gives you dark vision and (laughs) makes you invisible to other creatures dark vision so you are better off fighting in darkness than anybody yeah, this is a reason to take Ranger past first level for a tip. Um, you also get the Ambusher uh, ability. I think it used to be called Ambuscade in Unearthed Arcana. 
um, you basically get to make an extra attack on the first round of combat, and it deals extra damage if you uh, hit. Yeah, that's fine. Then you gain wisdom saving throws at 7th level. And again, if you already have proficiency in wisdom saving throws, you can choose intelligence or charisma. Right. Um, and then this gets Stalker's Flurry. So the Ranger overall is um, basically a class, a martial class that gets a conditional third attack. So every Ranger has some way of getting a third attack on the round. Um, this one is interesting. It it requires a miss. So you can re-roll a missed attack on your turn, but you can do it every turn, which I like a lot. I think that's one that's going to trigger quite often, and it's also like an ability that makes you feel good, right? Like it's like cool. Like I could have done nothing, and instead, I got to do something. Like those are those are fun abilities at the table. Yeah, um, I prefer consistency over big spikes, uh, and also as a ranger, you're always looking for ways to pile on as much extra damage onto those attacks as you can, and this just means that you're connecting in the first place. Yep. And then at 15th level, you can use your reaction to impose disadvantage on any attack roll against you. As long as they don't, you know, have advantage on you. Which gives you some good ranger tankiness that's uh, maybe been missing from some of the ranger subclasses. Yeah, although I think I'd rather just have the rogues on Kenny Dodge. Well, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Ten levels earlier. Right. <laughs> Um, you also get some kind of cool spells. Um, Disguise Self, I don't quite like, mm. um, but Rope Trick is super good for an ambusher. Mm-hmm. And then and um, Greater Invisibility. Greater Invisibility, yeah, exactly. The next ranger up is the Horizon Walker. This is the ranger, the planar ranger, essentially. And I like this a lot, though. That's because I am choosing to read its iconic ability more favorably. Yeah. <laughs> so it would be at least a little bit useful. Okay. We'll get to that in a second. Um, you get Misty Step and Haste and Banishment and Teleportation Circle. These are all great spells. Yes. You get the best spells of any ranger, I would say. Now, they changed the ability to detect planar portals to something that is either better or or terrible and it really just depends on what your GM decides because you can detect the only the closest planar portal within one mile of you but it also means that if you know of one or you stepped through one uh, you gotta get a mile away from it before you're even gonna be able to find another one well that's not true if you have two portals within a mile of each other you just gotta get closer to the other portal yeah but you don't know what direction it's in and so if you start pinging it's like oh it's that one next to you Yeah, no. I I guess you could eventually triangulate but you got to spend an hour before you can do it again. <laughs> it's fine. It's a ribbon ability. <laughs> so the the third level ability that you get is Planar Warrior, which uh, as a bonus action on your turn, you choose one creature you can see within 30 feet. And the next time you hit them this turn, you deal only force damage to them and you get an extra D8 force damage, which then increases to 2D8 at 11th level. I'm annoyed that this requires both a bonus action and an attack. And you've got to pick the creature ahead of time. Yeah, I hear you. But the Planar Ranger is not a dual-wielding ranger, obviously. Mm -hmm. I do like that it converts to force, which is basically unresisted. Yeah. Not super great against the Tarrasque, I guess. Or the Brooch of Shielding. (laughs) (laughs) Sure. Uh, I, I kind of like the mechanic at 7th level. You can cast... The etherealness spell, which is what, 8th level or something like that? Mm-hmm. 
but it only lasts for one round. I, I really like that you can cast a really high level spell, do whatever it is you need to do with it within your round, and then it's over. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and it refreshes on a short or long rest. Mm-hmm. It's essentially walk through walls. Right. Then at 11th level, you get Distant Strike, which is the ability that I think needs liberal reading to make this class viable. When you take the attack action, teleport up to 10 feet before each attack you make um, into an unoccupied space, which basically gives you the ability to get out of someone's reach without triggering an opportunity attack. And so you can move between targets on your attacks. Yeah, unfortunately, it doesn't allow you to focus fire. So you're really using it mostly for mobility or if you happen to kill someone. Right. Um, But if you attack at least two different creatures, you can make one additional attack on your turn. Uh, It specifies against a third creature. I think that should allow you to go back to the first, frankly. I definitely don't read it that way. Uh, no, no, I I know, <laughs> but you should already, it allow you to? I yes, it should allow you to. You already have to make attacks against two creatures. You're already spreading your damage. Then, like, it becomes way too situational, especially compared to Stalker's Flurry, <laughs> yeah, which is in this very book. Is there someone at Wizards who doesn't understand that you have to focus fire in this game and it, that it's a dumb idea to spread your damage out? Apparently, not the guy who wrote the Drunken Master or this. Yeah. Uh, and then again, at level 15, you get an ability, a defensive ability that would be better if it were just uncanny dodge. Yeah, I, you can give yourself resistance to all the damage from an attack as a reaction, which is just worse than uncanny dodge because that lets you have damage that you're taking um, from any source. And 10 levels later. And then our last ranger is the Monster Slayer. Uh, when this showed up in Unearthed Arcana, we liked it a lot, but it had a few serious... Um, logistical or mechanical issues, and they are still in it. Uh, you get some decent spells. At high levels, you get Banishment and Hold Monster, but it's nowhere near as good as the Horizon Walker. You get the ability to discern a creature's immunities, resistances, and vulnerabilities, which is actually really bad because you can only use it with the mod number of times per long rest. Um, I guess it's flavorful, but I don't understand why you can't just do it anytime, honestly, because yeah. it's not particularly useful. Right. Um, then you also get Slayer's Prey, which is basically an, a non-spell version of Hunter's Mark, uh, which doesn't preclude you from using Hunter's Mark. So you can either be adding 2d6 damage on your attacks, or you can... Um, you know, just use this and not use the spell slot. Uh, it only applies once per round, so it's a little more limited, but it's still pretty good. Yeah, but unfortunately, because it's only once per round and it costs a bonus action to use, you're sort of like, okay, which do I go with? Which means you should cast Hunter's Mark on the first round of combat and do extra damage on each of your attacks, and then only on the second round of combat should you be using Slayer's Prey, which is really annoying. Well, if you think... You get this ability at third level. You don't get a second attack until fifth. It's actually better to just use this instead of Hunter's Mark because then you're saving your spell slot. So at third and fourth level. Yeah, I mean, but, you know, that's... <laughs> you're a ranger, man. <laughs> Can't have nice things. Get used to sucking. <laughs> and then I don't like that most of the abilities in the subclass require you to have your slayer's prey in effect 
and they only work on the creature that is currently affected by your slayer's prey. Which makes you very good if you're in a boss fight and very bad if you're facing most encounters. Mm -hmm. The other logistical problem with this subclass is that at level 11, you can use your reaction to prevent a creature from teleporting or casting a spell, which is great. Uh, But then at 15th level, you can also use your reaction to make an attack and potentially resist uh, the uh, effect caused by a creature under your Slayer's Price. But those are both competing for your reaction. So essentially, you're standing in front of the vampire, and it's going to cast a spell or just try to teleport away, and you're like, ha-ha, I stop you, in which case you can't use your counter. Or you use your counter, and then they just teleport away. Yeah, but um, the the at least the thing is the counter can be used on every turn, and you can only use magic user's nemesis uh, to counter the spell on a short or long rest. So pretty soon you don't even have the option. Right. I mean, it's magic user's nemesis is basically your way of preventing the vampire's escape, right? They, they turn to gaseous form and try and float away or they teleport away or whatever it is. Like that's your ability to keep them in the fight when they would want to leave, which does kind of feel like these abilities are backwards. <laughs> like, yeah. Well, but, you know, then that's when they try to charm you. Right. And then you can't use your reaction because they'll just teleport away, but you fail the charm. And right. so you let them teleport away. Yeah. All right. On to rogue. So rogues get um, some cool flavor stuff. They get the guilty pleasure, um, <laughs> you know, kind of things that's going to get you caught basically, you know, large gems or, uh, the finest food and drink, right? Yeah, I love the chance to deflate someone's ego. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, then you get an adversary and a benefactor. Um, I, I like those. I think those really bring the rogue as a class to life um, within the game world. You know, the idea that, like, there's no, no, no cut purse works alone, right? There's always safety in numbers. Um, and it's a professional kind of class so you know other people in the profession yeah these are great options for contacts uh, even the adversaries right because often thieves need to ask for favors from people who don't like them yeah exactly that's sort of like the hallmark of the thief right it's like <laughs> it's always working with somebody you don't trust because obviously you're a thief you're not trustworthy either <laughs> all right so the first rogue subclass we get is the inquisitive And you start off being really, really good at detecting lies. You get a sort of lower level version of reliable talent. If you roll a 7 or lower on a d20 on an insight check to determine if a creature's lying, it's treated as an 8. I'm a little annoyed that when you do hit reliable talent, if uh, you are trained in insight, this this doesn't do anything anymore. But it is what it is. And then you can make uh, perception and investigation checks as a bonus action. Yeah. And then if they get another way of trigger, so following the swashbuckler model of mm-hmm. finding alternative ways to trigger sneak attack. So, so rogue has the assassin, which gives you super big sneak attacks in certain situations Then swashbuckler was, well, you don't need to rely on sneak attack. Like, you know mechanics you can get that more reliably um this has a different take on how to trigger your sneak attack more often and basically it requires you to make uh as a bonus action a wisdom insight opposed by their charisma deception check and if you succeed you as long as you don't have disadvantage you can use your sneak attack against that target for a minute 
I like the idea of this, but honestly, I'd rather just have the swashbuckler feature because it's much easier to apply. You don't have to have two opposed roles that slow down combat, and it doesn't affect only one creature. Yeah, I mean, as a GM, I think I would just say, cool, make like a DC 10. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. you have it. Or like... Just burn a bonus action that's already costing you so much. Right. You know, and you're probably investing in insight anyway. Just you you can have it. Right. I mean the the swashbuckler is built around a two weapon fighting sneak attack rogue. So it, it is still kind of different um space for that. But yeah, I agree. It is a little more complicated than it needs to be. Then you get some abilities to notice when people are trying to deceive you. And then at level 17, you can increase your sneak attack damage by 3d6 against whatever creature you've used your insightful fighting feature on previously. So there's a definite incentive to actually use it once you get to that level. Yeah, I mean, I think this is fine. I think this is a a good enough rogue. Yeah, um, is it Sherlock Holmes, which is really what the Inquisitive is supposed to be? Or is it the Sharn Inquisitive? I think it... fits the bill it's not over it's not like it's a bit underwhelming i suppose yeah i mean if you wanted to be sherlock holmes fisticuff style sherlock holmes right like the more source material stuff um then no because that's kind of a monk but or at least in D terms but i think in terms of sizing up your opponent and then really hitting them where it hurts yeah, I mean, this is the Sherlock Holmes approach to combat, right? Yeah, or if you want to be um, Wendy Bick, Mumble Snatch type of Sherlock Holmes, this one works. Okay. <laughs> Sorry, that's <laughs> Benedict Cumberbatch. Pennywise Stumblestick? Who was that guy? Smaug. <laughs> Mumble more dragon voice? That's him. That's him. All right, then we've got the Mastermind. We've talked about this in our Sword Coast Adventures Guide review because that first showed up in that book, and it is hot garbage. No, it's not good. Um, we also get the Scout, which is okay. It gets the Skirmisher ability, which lets you use your reaction to run away if an enemy ends its turn within hey. five feet of you. <laughs> I mean, that's a very iconic rogue ability. Yeah. <laughs> right. um, too close for comfort. Right. I'm going to have to keep this in mind for archer builds. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and that's what the scout is, is the archer rogue. I'm going to get a little ranty about the other ability you get at third level, survivalist. You get proficiency in nature and survival if you don't already have them. Now, the general rule for fifth edition is if you gain a skill proficiency and you already have it, you get to pick another skill. That's great. You don't get screwed. Uh, but this just means you have to be all like power gaming and min maxi and tell yourself, okay, uh, I have a character that grew up in the woods, uh, but I can't take nature or survival because I'm going to get them at third level for free and I get nothing if I already took them. Yep. That just, that sucks. You should not be penalized for actually playing your character the way they would be in the story. Yeah, exactly. Uh, but you do get expertise, so, you know, play it right, and you get two expertises, so that's great. I'm also annoyed by the ninth level ability, which is your walking speed increases by 10 feet, as does your climbing or swimming speed. Why didn't you just say your speed increases by 10 feet? Who cares if your fly speed increases by 10 feet? Yeah, I I know. Uh, at 13th level, you get a nifty ability, kind of a force multiplier ability, so you... Um, 
you have advantage on initiative rolls, and the first creature you hit during the first round of combat um, grants advantage to your allies when attacking it. Yeah, I love that. That's a nice warlordy ability, but it makes it so flavorful in that the rogue strikes first and hamstrings them. Exactly. And then um, adding to you know the archer type build for the scout is at 17 you get sudden strike so when you take the attack action you can make an additional attack as a bonus action um this can benefit from your sneak attack even if you've already used it which makes it very very special yeah although you can't use sneak attack twice on the same target which is unfortunate right but you could still use it to attack the same target Mm -hmm. um so overall i think this is um empty space for the rogue right an archer rogue Mm -hmm. i will say it is a better archer than the arcane archer oh absolutely yeah i'm actually a little bit excited about trying out the scout yeah and i'm i'm curious to try and figure out how to leverage those abilities for non-archer builds yeah it's too bad some of them are so high level but yeah maybe some splashes then we've got the swashbuckler which we also talked about from sword coast adventures guide the rogue is the only class in this book that steals two of the subclasses from a different book yeah but one of them is really really good um in fact if you played rogue with only the options in this book you would have very fun rogues yeah absolutely um don't play the mastermind any of the others are great yeah so next is sorcerer um we get an arcane origin a reaction and a supernatural mark the supernatural mark options are unfortunately dumb very 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 dumb Mm-hmm. They're like witch marks. Oh, you have three nipples. Yeah, you have an extra toe on one foot. Mm-hmm. Um, like, your eyes are an unusual color. Like, that's fine. You wrinkle your nose repeatedly while you are chewing. What is that? Your hair grows at a prodigious <laughs> rate. Like, you must spend more money on haircuts. <laughs> um, but the origins and the reaction are both interesting. Um, even though... Reaction is not a character trait, right? Like, reaction is how the world reacts to you, Mm -hmm. not anything to do with you as a character. And I don't like putting on a character sheet how everyone else in the world feels. Yeah, that's for the GM to decide, or the roles to decide, or the other people at the table to decide. Yeah, yeah. So, I... (sighs) I don't know. I think this has to be like a historical reaction. Yeah, exactly. Right. In in the past, here's what I have mostly experienced. Uh, you also get a sign of sorcery, which aren't great. They're sort of weird. You sweat profusely while casting a spell and for a few seconds thereafter. Okay, great. Yeah, I, I think I would just adopt like the 40K signs of, of psyker <laughs> use, you know, like hoarfrost and all those types of things. Walls bleed. Right. <laughs> <laughs> So first up for New Sorcerer's Origins is the Divine Soul, which you may know as the Favored Soul. This is essentially the Cleric Sorcerer. And it really is because it is an extremely versatile sorcerer. One of the problems with Sorcerer is that I think you have the fewest number of known spells mm-hmm. of any class. Um, that, this doesn't help with that. You still only know a few spells. But you can pick from the cleric list anytime you learn a new spell. You also get one additional spell, which, okay, fine, uh, but you can just swap it out for a different spell at your first opportunity. Uh, Yeah, as long as you replace it with a spell from the cleric spell list. 
Great. So you get one additional low-level cleric spell eventually. Yeah. Favored by the gods is great. Again, that's at first level. If you fail a saving throw or miss an attack roll, you can roll 2d4 and add it to the total. And we know how strong the bless spell is. So 2d4 is, I think in most cases, except an abject failure, going to turn that into a success. Yep. Um, then you get a bonus to healing spells. You empower other people's healing spells. So we're really moving away from the blasty sorcerer. At 14th level, we get an ability that is basically, if you don't have it as a sorcerer, you're missing out. Yeah. Uh, you get wings because all sorcerers should have fly speeds in some way. Now, does the dragon sorcerer, do their wings disappear when they get in- incapacitated? Don't fly too high. Yeah. Don't fly too close to the sun. And then you get a bunch of extra healing at 18th level. It's fine. Then we get the Shadow Sorcerer. A little bit like the opposite of the Divine Soul. Uh, you get Killer Dark Vision. 120 foot range. Mm-hmm. And I absolutely love this. Um, at third level, you learn the Darkness spell. Uh, and if you cast it by spending two sorcery points, you can see through the darkness. Mm-hmm. Always cast this spell by spending sorcery points. Right. Then at first level, they also get Strength of the Grave, which is yet another pop back up from zero hit points ability. Mm -hmm. This is, I think, the earliest one we've seen. I I guess the earliest non-half-orc one we've seen, um, which makes this a great dip for any character who's looking for some tankiness. Yeah, it's only once per long rest, but you probably only need it once per long rest. Then at sixth level, we get Hound of Ill Omen, which is a lot of words that basically amount to flavor Mm -hmm. for no good reason because it can only target one creature and then it disappears. It has hit points and then it disappears. And like its effect is basically like what disadvantage. Yeah. And it can make opportunity attacks like, okay, but it's probably not going to hang out long. It's good in a solo fight. Yeah. I, it's a bad summon. Yeah. I don't know why it had to be a summon. Uh, like I, I feel like spiritual guardian spell would have been fine, right? You know, mm-hmm. like that. Yeah, just get the ability to use like a shadow version of that. Like, yeah. if one of the criticisms of this is that they didn't do much to build new mechanics, like it's because there were some old ones they could have recycled mm-hmm. and use the same wording. <laughs> yeah. At fourteenth level, you get the ability that the shadow monk has, which is when you're in dim light or darkness, you can teleport to dim light or darkness. And then at 18th level, you can burn a bunch of your sorcery points and get resistance to all damage except force and radiant. And you can move through objects and creatures. Yeah, this is not that good. Um, especially compared to other 18th level abilities for sorcerers, like um, a full-on fly speed for storm sorcerer. Plus for your party. I think the the ability itself is good, not at this level, and not on a sorcerer. Like this would be great on a melee character. Yeah, yeah. I I don't think this is a great subclass. I think it's confused as to what it's supposed to be. Also, how many shadow flavor subclasses do we need? And speaking of that, next up is storm sorcery. This is like the sixth storm, storm subclass. Yeah, yeah. They they're milking it. Yeah. Um, although I, I, although storm sorcery is not new true um god yeah i just feel like when you go into shadow form you should deal extra necrotic damage or something that like or cold damage like 
it should it should somehow make you better at casting because you are still like the shadow sorcerer is still basically just a dps sorcerer right it should do something that makes you better at doing what sorcerers do which is Mobility, murdering things apparently. with spells you're right oh wait no <laughs> tanking oh, it's attacking things no it's leaving right <laughs> leaving and then yeah as you alluded to storm sorcerer is the other option in here uh that's just a reprint from sword coast adventures guide and one that we liked mm-hmm. then we're on to warlocks so i gotta be honest um i have given up on reading warlock <laughs> Not not because Warlock isn't interesting, um, but because the way that its mechanics are laid out in a book is very hard to keep track of how things interact. Yeah, that's fair. Because it's got those dual axes of you pick your pact, and you also pick your patron. And you also pick invocations, mm-hmm. which may be tied to your pact or patron. And then you pick your spells, which don't interact with spells from other classes. Yeah, right. it's, it is a complicated class unfortunately but i'll defer to you on power here all right (laughs) and i'll stick with flavor (laughs) so the extra backstory elements are patron attitudes special terms that you might have uh, with your patron about your pact and a binding mark although the binding marks are dumb just like some of the sorcerer marks your tongue is an unnatural color your nose glows in the dark please no one ever pick that i i will say the patron attitudes are kind of a revelation um because the warlock is always thus far depicted as the sucker right the one who like damned himself in order for temporary power right it's always sold your soul right um but i really love like your patron is the spirit of a long dead hero who sees your pact as a way for it to continue to influence the world Mm -hmm. right like a partner Right or or even like you are enabling your uh your patron to to continue doing good right, right. which is so different. Um, there's also one that's like your patron has uh, guided your family for generations. I love that one. That's amazing, mm-hmm. right? Like that, and and it can still be tragic, right? It can still be a fiend. Your family could still be tied to a fiend, working for generations against that fiend's interest, and it's just a plaything for him. But like. I I just I love the flavor that that stuff evokes. I think of everything here for the warlock, that's the one that like really changes your character. And it, and it gives ammunition for players who have GMs who think that the patron relationship always has to be adversarial. Right, right. So we get two new patrons. The first off is the Celestial, which speaks to exactly what we were talking about. The Celestial is not angry or evil. The Celestial is trying to help the warlock the celestial is trying to uh spread good in the world right which is distinct from a deity you know that that invests a cleric Mm -hmm. you get some really interesting you get access to some really interesting spells cure wounds and guiding bolt uh flaming sphere lesser restoration revivify you get revivify on a warlock yeah (laughs) twice per short rest (laughs) (laughs) Uh, you get a pool of d6s, much like uh, one of the druids. Uh, you roll them and, and heal some people. And you get a little bit of extra damage. Uh, I don't think this really adds a bunch of extra damage or that you can stack with other 
options. At sixth level, you can add your charisma modifier uh, to one roll of a spell that deals radiant or fire damage. So it's it's not going to work for um, scorching ray, for example. It'll yeah. just do five extra damage. Yeah, exactly. So it's a watered down version of the dragon sorcerer's sixth level ability or agonizing blast. <laughs> yeah. yeah. At tenth level, you gain a quite a, a large amount of temporary hit points after you rest and uh, you can give hit points to five other creatures and then searing vengeance lets you <laughs> once again <laughs> avoid dying at zero hit points though this is yet like the 15th different way we've seen it implemented yeah uh, fortunately it's limited once per long rest when you have to make a death saving throw at the start of your turn, you can just get back on your feet with hit points back. <laughs> like You just regain hit points equal to half your total um, and then stand up. And potentially blind anyone you want within 30 feet of you. And deal radiant damage. <laughs> like, like you go down and you burst back up once per long rest. Now, we do have to compare these to the other 14th level abilities uh, from other Warlock patrons, and I think this is on par with something like Create Thrall or Hurl Through Hell. Yeah, no, I think this is a, a cool ability. Um, you know, in the Geek the Mage tradition of, <laughs> of, of role-playing games, like, yeah, maybe you think twice about geeking that guy. And and coming back with half HP makes it feel less like a delaying tactic mm-hmm. and more like reinvigorating the fight, right? Yeah, turning the tide. Exactly. It's like a tempo swing. Mm-hmm. All right, then we've got the Hexblade. Um, this may be the reason that many of you out there buy this book because it mostly fixes the Pact of the Blade. If from now on you're playing a pact of the blade warlock your patron needs to be a hex blade and you caught this uh i didn't even realize it um the hex blade is flavor wise tied to the raven queen yeah it's kind of getting folded in together which means we're probably not going to be getting the raven queen as a separate patron which is probably fine um i could see why they wouldn't want that tied specifically to forgotten realms right Mm -hmm. The, the patrons are all more general than that so i think this is a good compromise there uh, the expanded spell list is amazing. It's very gishy. Yeah. Shield, several smites, blur, elemental weapon, cone of cold randomly. Yeah. Uh, phantasmal killer. <laughs> <laughs> Those are very Raven Queen now that I think about it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you can uh, place a Hexblade's Curse, which gives you a bonus to damage rolls equal to your proficiency bonus against the cursed creature. Uh, you crit in a 19 or 20, and if it dies, you regain some hit points. So don't worry about the Fiend. The Hexblade's gotcha. Except that it's only once per short or long rest. Yeah, it's not until level 14 that you can actually move the curse around, which is a long time to wait. But the main thing you're looking for is at level 1, you get proficiency with medium armor, shields, and martial weapons. And you can pick a one-handed weapon, and you can use charisma for attack and damage rolls instead of strength or dexterity. Which means that now you don't have to be a character that is investing both in strength and charisma or dex and charisma. You can focus pretty much solely on charisma. The ability also extends automatically to your Pact of the Blade. Blade? And then you can create another, you know, mm-hmm. th- give that ability to another weapon. So you can now effectively dual wield as 
a warlock. Well, it's about time. At 6th level, you can temporarily curse the soul of someone that you slay and turn them into a specter from the monster manual, which lasts until you finish a long rest. Um, although I'm pretty sure there's some flavor text in the monster manual about like the specters, the soul of the creature turned into a specter is like in horrible agony. So I don't really know how that works. Like a non-evil warlock. Maybe we're just ignoring that, I guess. Yeah. At 10th level, you, (laughs) you gain the ability to use your reaction and have a 50, 50 shot of an attack missing you, which is basically always on blink. For a reaction. Yeah, and I guess comes down to basically the same thing as Uncanny Dodge. Yeah. At 14, Master of Hexes lets you move your Hexblade curse from one uh, creature to another one after it dies. Yeah, you're still limited um, by using this once per short rest, though, so you're only going to get the benefit of it in one combat. Mm -hmm, The extra temp HP. Now, all warlocks, however, can choose from some of the new Eldritch Invocations. Um, This is a nice list. Uh, Sort of like uh, later in the book, the new spells are a nice list. We won't hit all of them, but just some of the highlights. Eldritch Smite, 5th level, Pact of the Blade required. Uh, You can use your warlock slots to smite, so every Hexblade is basically a paladin who can also multiclass paladin. Yeah, I, I think that might be overkill. <laughs> uh, I, I will point out that the math in this invocation is a lot better than the math that's described for the paladin. It's just 1d8 plus 1d8 per level of the spell slot mm-hmm. instead of the paladin's wording, which is 2d8 plus 1d8 for every level above first. Oh, you've already lost me. That's so complicated. I, yeah, I know. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, at 7th level you can pick up ghostly gaze which lets you see through solid objects up to 30 feet not limited by lead or stone or anything like that we can finally build superman (laughs) at 5th level you can pick up gift of the depths which lets you breathe underwater and you get a swim speed and you can uh, cast water breathing that's super flavorful and actually ideal in uh, an aquatic game then improved packed weapon is also important. I know a lot of people are excited about this uh, on the internets. It lets you use your uh, packed weapon as a spellcasting focus, and then it also makes it a plus one weapon, uh, which again is useful dependent on the number of magic items in your campaign, but falling into that weird gap where what does wizards want to do with magic items? Your Pact of the Blade can now also conjure a shortbow, longbow, light crossbow, or heavy crossbow. Now, you can combine this with the Eldritch Smite invocation and smite on ranged attacks with this bow, which means that the Warlock is so much better an Arcane Archer than the Arcane Archer. Mm-hmm. At 15th level, Shroud of Shadow lets you cast Invisibility at will. There's also a handful of um, invocations that alter your eldritch blast Mm -hmm. um i like that you know one of the ones that we generally recommend is the ability to push a creature with your eldritch blast i can't remember what it's called but now we have repelling repelling blast oh repelling blast yeah now we have grasp of hadar you can pull a creature with your eldritch blast though only once per turn so if you're playing a pact of the blade warlock uh, just stop listening to this review right now and go get this book and then come back and i guess finish listening to this review Finally, on to Wizard, our last class. 
So wizards can come up with more information about their spellbook, what it looks like, uh, their ambitions as a spellcaster, and their and their eccentricities. These seem very uninspired to me, to be honest. I'm not impressed by these compared to some of the other classes. Yeah, I agree with you. And wizards are only getting one new arcane tradition, war magic. You have an at-will ability that lets you increase your AC or your bonus to a saving throw, but you have to trade in a bit of your magical ability. For uh, about a round, you can only cast cantrips. Yeah, until the end of your next turn, you can only cast cantrips. You do get a bonus to your initiative equal to your intelligence modifier, which this is only at second level, so you could stack that with uh, the, I think, charisma bonus that you get from Swashbuckler, Mm -hmm. and then be a bard and have a really impressive initiative modifier. Yeah. (laughs) I don't know what you're going to do with all of that initiative, though. Go first, always. (laughs) And leave. (laughs) I'm disappointed in the power surge mechanic. I don't think we have to go into it, but how often do you dispel magic or counterspell in like a given combat? Not all that often. Yeah, and you basically are charging up to deal damage with it, uh, kind of similar to like absorb elements. Um, but there's an argument to be made that counterspell is a is an unfun spell. I mean, we like it because it's super powerful, but like the whole thing where you just negate things from happening and saying no, I don't approve, like that's a little frustrating. Mm-hmm. So I, I could see why you wouldn't want to build a class around encouraging that. That's kind of fair. Yeah, it's a little weird that this class, the way it's written, is sort of based around um, combat between mages, but you're getting like all these AC bonuses. I guess the saving throw bonus is good. That's helpful. Uh, Because at 10th level, as long as you're concentrating on a spell, you get a plus two bonus to AC and saving throws. So just make sure you've got a cantrip that requires concentration. Yeah, I mean, well, so let's talk about why that is, right? Because the the biggest threat, if you view wizards war wizards as battlefield controllers the biggest threat to them would be losing concentration on a control spell right so they're built around being able to keep their concentration by avoiding damage and that's a bonus to ac a bonus to saving throws and and you know generally like giving up your ability to cast another spell is probably not a huge deal because maintaining your concentration is sort of the most important thing when you've got half the enemy army slept because i assume mooks only have one hit point they're minions. Fourth edition minions. Um, and then the last ability you get at 14th level is uh, whenever you use your arcane deflection as a reaction, you can cause um, up to three creatures within 60 feet to take force damage equal to half your wizard level. So, you know, a free 30 damage or up to 30 damage just for avoiding an attack. That's not bad. Mm-hmm. All right. And that's it for the subclasses. But... There's still more than half the book left. Uh, Next, you get a bunch of random tables on figuring out who you are and where you're from. And I actually really love these tables. Um, I know Jim in our playgroup is probably going to love these as well because he loves random tables. But anyone who likes... um, like a life path creation in Eclipse phase or like character creation in general in Traveler uh, is going to really enjoy these. And I really like that uh, Wizards is very careful in saying that if you roll something you don't like, don't use it. If you roll something you can't figure out how to work in your backstory, don't use it or pick something that you enjoy. Yeah. And I mean, I think there's there's good stuff in here, good ideas. Um, It's not 
too linked to Forgotten Realms. Mm-hmm. So it, it's still good generic fantasy kind of background stuff. Yeah, and it's nicely comprehensive. So, you know, you can roll who your parents were if you were a half-elf. Like, which parent was an elf? Which parent was a human? Uh, were they both half-elves? Um, you can roll your birthplace, siblings, number of siblings, the birth order of those siblings. Like, I really like that if you uh, have a player who just isn't really interested in creating backstories, you can just have them roll on all these tables and find out. Or if you're having a bit of writer's block about your backstory, or if you just have no idea what you want to play, what kind of character you want to play, just roll on these tables and see what you come up with. Yeah, this is also great for GMs who have to create pre-made characters oh, yeah. for, uh, like, say, con games. Uh, that's going to be super helpful to just be able to roll stuff. Mm-hmm. I also like that if you've got a player who's presenting you with a backstory that's really cliched, you know, oh, I'm an orphan, you can have them roll on the orphan table, essentially, and be like, how'd your parents die? They could have been torn apart by an animal or natural disaster. Maybe they just abandoned you. <laughs> <laughs> And there's personal decisions, which are broken down by the different backgrounds that you can pick in the player's handbook. Um, different things that may have happened in your early years as a sage or a sailor. You get class training broken down by each one of the classes in the PHB. You know, why did I become a cleric? And then there's also life events, which are things that happen to you or things that you have done prior to the beginning of your adventuring career. Yeah, and you get a number of these based on how old you are. And, of course, you can pick how old you are or you can roll to see how old you are. And some of these actually have little minor benefits or minor detriments that are mostly flavor but really interesting, right? Uh, You have nasty scars and you're missing an ear or 1d3 fingers. Or a friendly alchemist gifted you with a potion of healing. Mm-hmm. Uh, you could have committed a crime. Maybe there's a, a punishment. What kind of tragedies happened in your life? So then we move on to new feats, which unfortunately are all racial feats. Mm-hmm. So these are, of course, then limited by the race you choose as to what's available to you. And, of course, limited to races in the player's handbook because there aren't any feats here for the races in Volo's Guide. And I suspect we're not going to see them. Right. Well, obviously not because you're only allowed one book for Adventures League. <laughs> yeah, I think um, every every race has at least one from the PHB. Mm-hmm. Uh, some of them get a choice. It's... One just general complaint here. I think these are the types of things that I would have liked to seen added on as choices just for the races. Mm-hmm. Um, make race a little cooler, I guess. <laughs> um, because a lot of times the racial features, like for a lot of races, don't scale well. So you stop doing your racial stuff as you get higher level. Um, some of these do scale, so that's kind of helpful. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree. Uh, these seem to be here to provide ways to have the iconic abilities of the race. Like Drow High Magic gives you like Levitate and Dispel Magic, which we know from all the books Drow are just supposed to have anyway. Right. But it doesn't really work because there's no level adjustment in 5th edition. So now you have to burn one of your very precious feats. Right. Um, like Elven Accuracy lets you uh, re-roll one of your dice when you have advantage. Um, like cool like actually i really like that that isn't just a static bonus Mm -hmm. like used to be just like a plus two right great right like that's a that's a cool ability but like that's an elf thing like why do some elves not have it 
<laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree. So the first one up is Bountiful Luck for Halflings. And I really love this one because you can use your lucky trait on someone else's natural one. Uh, the other ones that I would probably call out are Prodigy, which a half-elf, half-orc, or human can take. You get a skill proficiency, a tool proficiency, and a language proficiency, and you get expertise in a skill. And aside from Rogue and Bard and Knowledge Cleric, this is pretty much the only way to get expertise, really. An easy way, actually. Yeah, I, I think this is a super important feat. It just kind of sucks that it's limited to humans. Yeah, I totally agree. I think any GM out there, is this, this would be fine to let any race take. Except that now humans don't have anything for themselves. <laughs> like, but Well, but humans are already great. Yeah, exactly. Um, humans are still the only ones who can take Prodigy at the start with the variant humans. Yeah, so. at level one. And then the only one, other one I would probably call out is Second Chance from the Halfling, which... Uh, lets you use your reaction to force a creature to re-roll an attack that hit you. Um, but they could just crit when they re-roll. So I would actually just sort of sandbag this until you do get critted. Be very careful that you don't second chance and then actually die. Yeah. So that's the end of chapter one. And chapter two is Dungeon Master's Tools. A lot of the information in here is stuff that was floated in Unearthed Arcana, and some of it sort of shows up changed only a little bit. But the chapter starts off with some clarifications, which are actually nice. Uh, reaction timing, this was a codified rule, I think, in 4th edition. Uh, if there are things that happen at the same time, it is the character whose turn it currently is who decides what order they happen in, which, you know, it, it can have big repercussions depending on what triggered effects there are like if there is if you're supposed to take a bunch of damage at the end of your turn but you're also supposed to gain a bunch of hp at the end of your turn it's probably better to gain the hp first if the damage would kill you right uh, there are some variant rules for falling so you don't have to fall you know ten thousand feet in a single round like you technically would need to according to the falling rules in the player's handbook there's also rules for sleep, so when you have those annoying party members who insist that they sleep in their armor or whatever so that they can't be ambushed, you can penalize them. Ha 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 ha. Yeah, right, because this is definitely what we needed. Right. Uh, we get adamantine weapons. Um, I, I'm glad we're seeing these, uh, but mechanically they critically hit objects that you attack them with, and that's fine but the old flavor of hey i'm an adventurer and i carry an adamantine dagger around with me because you know it can slice through anything and it doesn't matter that it's a dagger it just needs to be adamantine and it's just as good as like the long sword because it ignores hardness or whatever this doesn't capture that because critting with your dagger is like using a regular long sword right <laughs> so yay uh, so then we also get a little si aside about tying knots uh, with an example of using an intelligent sleight of hand instead of dexterity sleight of hand. Whatever. I can't imagine too many people were asking about this, but sure. What that means is that the only people who are actually good at tying knots are arcane tricksters. Because who else is going to have high intelligence and uh, sleight of hand proficiency? <laughs> right. So, yay, everyone's terrible at tying knots. Then next we get a really large section on tool proficiencies, and I love this section because it gives 
actual uses and actual mechanical uses for having a tool proficiency. The main mechanic is if you have both a tool proficiency and a skill proficiency that are applicable to a task, you can get advantage. And you may even get an additional extra benefit or an auto success on a later check. So there's a description of each tool in the player's handbook, in the in the equipment section. And then it tells you um, the components of it because you are also considered to be proficient in each of the components. Uh, it goes through a list of uh, example skills and ways in which you could actually use those. And then a list of DCs for, in general, what you can do using these tools. Yeah, I I struggle with this because I think tool proficiencies are underexplored in 5th edition. Mm-hmm. Um, but codifying synergies between skills, like, I don't know about that. I, I agree with you in principle, but if you look at the actual mechanical benefits that you get... They're very small. Very small, yeah. but in ways that are like, oh, that's kind of cool. I can see that. Yeah, like I have cobbler's tools, so I'm good at identifying magic boots. Or uh, I can work on everyone's shoes, and we can travel 10 hours uh, of a forced march before having to rest, rather than 8 hours. Okay, that's so tiny, but oh my god, someone needs to take Cobbler's Tools in our Dark Sun game immediately. Because <laughs> <laughs> those extra two hours, uh, eight of us have died well, due to exhaustion checks. <laughs> sure. <laughs> the rest died of trench foot. <laughs> um, my only problem with this is the the skill synergies are really kind of edge cases. So it's going to be very difficult for a GM to offer them up so you kind of need to present these as a list to players and then have them bring it up when it would actually be applicable but i do like that you have the option to combine a tool proficiency with a different tool proficiency where it would actually make sense like navigators tools plus cartographers tools essentially equals knowledge geography yeah 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 i I think in terms of using these at the table i think it would be okay to just kind of put these on cards for players it's like Mm -hmm. just a reminder here's some things you can do with that and then rather than hewing to it like exactly use it more for inspiration of like hey ask me if you can use stuff right like get a little skill bargaining going on these because tool proficiencies are probably mostly unused yeah i highly recommend going through and reading just to get some ideas and get creative juices flowing, read some of the ideas that they list for the skill synergies, because some of these, again, they don't do an amazing thing, but the way that they link them together is actually really creative. Like, for example, if you have proficiency in cook's utensils, um, you can get advantage on survival checks when you are foraging for food. And if you think about it, that's, that's a perfect representation of the fact that anyone who is who can who knows how to use a fishing line can catch a blowfish but only a cook someone who is a trained chef knows how to turn that into actual edible food i don't think you know a lot about catching blowfish <laughs> i am not trained in in survival <laughs> <laughs> yeah it, it's also like yes that mushroom is edible no that one not so much right uh, I do notice, though, that if you take a look at Thieves' Tools, I mean, every rogue has Thieves' Tools, and pretty much everybody tries to take Thieves' Tools if they're sort of stuck taking a tool proficiency. Um, but it basically results in you getting advantage on finding traps. 
because if you if you have investigation or perception, is you gain additional insight when looking for traps because you've learned to look for a variety of common signs that betray their presence. You have advantage on looking for traps. Like, great. Now everyone should have advantage on noticing traps. Right. Period. Yeah. Always. Yeah. So the next section is on spell casting. Um, this basically comes down to spellcraft is back. I kind of missed it, but I'm disappointed in the way that it's presented here. I, I saw an argument about this with Jeremy Crawford, and I, oh God, I just so intensely do not care. <laughs> like, like, I aggressively don't want to have to deal with more stupid D20 rolls to know if I can do something I cannot, we all know is happening. I think what what happened a lot in Morning Glory was that someone was saying, okay, should I use a counterspell? When a, the enemy wizard is casting a spell, well, what are they casting? What do you mean I don't know what they're casting? There's no rules for that? Okay, can I make an arcana check? And I'd be like, yeah, all right, make a high arcana check, and maybe you can kind of figure out what school or whatever, right? Sure. Especially if it's a spell you already know. But yeah. this is, you've got to use your reaction in order to identify the spell, which means that you can't counterspell. Right. Well, which means that two people have to use a reaction yeah. in order to get a good counterspell. Exactly. Which, fine, who cares? Mm -hmm. Like just roll the arcana check and do it like building mechanics in around a counter spell is like not addressing the problem with counter spell right which is that it just says no so like i don't know you let counter spell into the game take it out if you don't like it i like it i like being able to identify spells i don't like the way it works now uh, it also means that you can't identify psionics in any way because there's no components so go screw uh there's a big long section with a whole bunch of pictures about using shapes on a grid which basically boils down to uh, use squares instead of circles and here are complicated ways to put dice on a grid but you won't be able to do that anyway because there are probably minis in the grid and you'd have to move the minis and so why are we even presenting this to you yeah it's it's a little bit weird um but at least it's recognizing that fifth edition still works better with a grid mm -hmm. you know i mean like it works fine theater of the mind but it does work better with a grid so like let's at least finally publish the tools you need in order to do that effectively mm -hmm. next up we get a large section on encounter building which is essentially a, partly an addendum to what you get in the dungeon master's guide but also partly a rewrite the, yeah this is this is fixing a broken section of a book i already paid for well, it doesn't really fix solo monsters. They're still garbage. Okay, but it fixes general encounter building. Okay. Well, well I don't know. We haven't run the numbers, okay. so we don't know if it actually fixes it. It, it changes it. It probably doesn't fix it. Yeah. But it is it is rewriting a section I've already bought, mm -hmm. which is, I'm sorry, garbage. Now, from a and from an actual encounter building standpoint, it is good that they're saying, okay, you need to look not only at your PC's level, but you need to look at their max HP, their saving throw bonuses, and the amount of damage they're able to deal in a single hit. But oh my god, that's so much information to juggle with like four to six PCs. Also, it's missing the single most important factor, which is none of those things. It's how rested are they when they start the fight? How many of their abilities are already gone? Because a deadly encounter at the end of the day kills your party. A deadly encounter at the beginning of the day is a slight speed bump. That would have been worth a sentence somewhere. <laughs> you'd, you'd think, right? But, like, you, they can't provide idiot rules for those. So, like, it, that's the feel part of, of encounter planning. And, like, they don't even attempt to address it or acknowledge it 
because they can't solve it. Yeah, the main advice that they actually give is try not to use creatures that can one-shot your lowest HP PC and try to avoid using creatures that your PCs can kill in one hit. And it doesn't say anything about, you know, whether or not you're using save or suck spells or whether, you know, you have monsters that are totally charming them and then they can't do anything anyway. Right. But you really should be focused on that. Yeah, like uh, how do I counter plan for a Banshee? Yeah. Right, uh-huh. which takes over a character as soon as the whale hits. Or a dragon fear. If everyone fails, great. You're spending a minute doing nothing exactly. except getting eaten. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, dragon breath right. again and again. Uh, I do like that there is a section on monster relationships. Um, it's a great way to add some personality or individuality or to even add tactics to an encounter. Like oftentimes you're like, all right, I have six goblins. What do they do? Well, if you pick a personality or interactions between those goblins, then you know exactly how they're going to act. I would just caution that uh, giving too much personality to random mooks ends up being a red herring, and then you have PCs who are like, oh, it must have been important because they did things that we noticed. Right, the Meepo problem. (laughs) Right. But then I would say, you know, if your players have latched onto that, go with it and make it so that those maybe actually were important NPCs. Yeah, I... So this section again is like great, uh, great ideas, but no, no instruction on how to implement it. Like the problem is not coming up with a relationship for monsters. It's displaying that relationship in the three to five rounds that the monster is alive and acting in combat when your character or when your players are staring at their character sheets and trying to figure out what they're doing next. Like it doesn't matter if you're, if one of your goblins is outcast by the group and its allies ignore it, if your players are only seeing six goblins, right? So how do I highlight that? How do I make that visible to my players? How do I get that through to them? Like, I have no information on that. And like, I don't even have an answer for you. You know, like, I don't know how I would try and show that if without just lampshading it, which doesn't seem like a great solution. Like this isn't, this is frustrating for me because it's not a guide to dungeon mastering. It's some ideas that came from un- from someone's like DM's guild material. Well, in keeping with a lot of the tables and charts in this book, it's random stuff you can add if you want. You know, and it's it's, it's roll a die, right? Roll a d6, and half the time it makes the combat easier because these monsters are infighting. Right. <laughs> like, uh, yeah. Exactly. And then we get a a quick matchup chart that basically tells you how many monsters are equivalent to what level of PC. I don't have any idea right off the bat if this thing works, but honestly, it it looks already off at first glance. Four CR4 monsters are equivalent to a 20th level character. No. Yeah. No, no, they're not. No. One mass hold monster and we're done. Yeah. (laughs) Like... Four Mastodons do not bother a 20th level PC. Yeah, They're at CR6, all. so no. And then we get a whole bunch of random encounters. Uh, tables for all different levels and all different types of terrain. I guess these are fun for old school players to have. Because, hey, who knows what we're going to roll up. Uh, oh, it was double zero, so it's a Frost Giant level 2 party. Yeah. They are careful to say... Oh, right. Not all of these are supposed to be combats. If your party is definitely going to get wiped, then maybe the 2d6 bandits, you know, demand a toll. They're not actually out looking for a fight or the frost giant wants a magic item or something like that. But, you know, roll high, get screwed. Yeah, it's, um, 
it's weird because it's another list of tables that are underexplained. Mm-hmm. Uh, there is that blurb there, but like it doesn't give you a useful way of implementing these tables, right? Like, I think they're helpful if if my characters are going into the Arctic and I need to know what are the kind of threats they might face in the Arctic. Great, like encounter tables are great for that inspiration. They're not good for just rolling randomly, like you mentioned, right? Like. I don't know, 1d8 plus 1 frost giants. Like, <laughs> What are like, they doing there? Like, I know it's not a combat encounter. They would destroy my party. No, no, it's fine. Uh, one of them is an outcast. <laughs> right. It's unliked by the other ones. <laughs> yeah. or, or like 1d4 uh, Remmer Haze. Like, those aren't intelligent monsters, so that's, an, that's a combat encounter. Don't they eat each other? Maybe. <laughs> yeah, like... Only if they're frost giants, let them off their leashes. Oh, right. <laughs> you know, so it's like I like having these tables because they're they're helpful as quick reference to kind of start planning a session. But you need an explanation of how to use these tables in a way that isn't just roll randomly and throw it. Yeah, there's a solid what fifteen pages of these random encounter tables. I wish they had just released these as a free PDF. And then had more content in this book because this certainly seems like oh stuff we wanted to put in the dungeon master's guide but we didn't have room. Yeah, um, I am confident this exists somewhere on DM's Guild for ninety nine cents. Mm. I will say you know you sort of flip through these pages very quickly because you know you're not reading this information and you notice that the art in this book is really good. Yeah, I flipped through these pages super quick and I really enjoyed the art. <laughs> Um, yeah, there are some really lovely paintings. Uh, some are very serious and evocative, uh, and some are actually kind of funny. I, I find some of the pictures more comedic than the um, margin notes from Xanathar. <laughs> That's like all of them. <laughs> so the next sep- section is traps. Um, this is basically lifted from the traps revisited on Earth Arcana which is fine. I think we really liked that on our Turkana. Yeah. There is a warning that says, you know, don't use too many traps or your players will just get bored or terrified of everything, which I think is almost like a, a very specific dig toward Tomb of Horrors. Yeah. <laughs> so you've got simple traps and complex traps. Uh, each section starts off with an example of the trap. You know, a simple trap is uh, a pit trap and a complex trap is like a a massive boulder rolling down a hill like an Indiana Jones, but at the bottom of the hill, it falls through a portal and starts at the top again. I'm sorry. That's a sphere of crushing doom. Oh, not sorry a about that. Boulder rolling down a hill like Indiana Jones. <laughs> oh, we're going to get sued again. Like right. <laughs> just like hobbits. Yeah. Um, the three traps that they suggest in here that they've kind of pre-built are cool and evocative. I think, you know, that's a neat thing to drop into a campaign or to, sort of reflavor and kind of reconstruct and redesign. So I, I like this section. Mm-hmm. I think the probably the most useful thing is the charts for uh, the save DCs and attack bonuses of the traps and then damage severity by level and spell equivalent by level. This tells you how much damage should a trap be doing to be moderate, dangerous, or deadly toward a character of a particular level. And what level spell should be cast to be moderate, dangerous, or deadly to a particular character? And what should the save DCs and the attack bonuses be? This is this is information that I wish I just had in terms of monster design. Mm-hmm. Why isn't it in that section? Right. Um, and then the other part of this that I really like is that, especially for complex traps, is that 
it's not as simple as detect the trap and move on. Mm-hmm. Uh, like, don't step in the pit. Cool, we avoided it. Or we fail to roll and then we take some damage. Like, the complex traps have story to them, right? Um, they, they have to be figured out and solved. They, they've got, like, a puzzle element to them. So I think that makes them more engaging for players. Yeah, they have initiative um, they they take, require multiple checks over multiple rounds in order to disable. I think you and I consistently say one of the things we really liked about fourth edition D and D was skill challenges, and these are essentially skill challenges that kill you if you fail. Yeah, yeah, which is, you know, fine. <laughs> I agree. I mean, I think all the skill challenges that we put together also kill you if you fail. Right. It's just the king ordering that you're getting your head cut off. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so. The next section is downtime, which is another crib from Unearth Arcana. Mm-hmm. Um, some of these downtime activities are, I think, really cool, and others are really aggravating and frustrating. Yeah, it, it's basically a way of structuring downtime um, so that you have sort of f- fixed sets of activities you can complete within, you know, a period of time. Mm-hmm. So it starts off with rivals. Uh, this is NPCs that a GM will build. There's some tables to figure out who a rival is. There's some examples of, of who they are and what their plans are and ways that they might interact with your players. And then it just goes through a list of possible downtime activities. Each one has what the activity is and then potential complications. First up is buying a magic item. This annoys me a lot because it is based solely on a charisma persuasion check in order to find out what's available. You can add bonuses to it by spending a bunch of money and more time, but it's always based on charisma persuasion, which doesn't make any sense to me because big spenders find a way or they like hire some, I guess you just basically hire someone else to go make this charisma check. Right. Which is annoying because now you've got you basically have to go find someone who's like your level as well right. in order to go look for it, and then they're probably just going to steal it from you because why wouldn't they? Yeah, they've already got it at that point, right? Also, if you look at the complications, there is a one in three chance that even if you found an item and you bought an item, that you didn't actually get the item because it was either fake or it was stolen or the buyer was murdered before you could buy it. Or the original owner will come to try and kill you to get it back. Yeah, and that's not even counting things like cursed by a god, tied to a cult. <laughs> like, I just want to have a disguise, man. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, I guess this adds more flavor than magic item shops, but uh, to what benefit? Right, how many freaking rolls? You've got carousing, which is interesting. I think we talked about before with Unarth Arcana. Like you can do things like carouse with the lower class and then you maybe you end up married, which is maybe a little stereotypical. Right. <laughs> <laughs> um but it is it is an interesting way to make contacts and mm-hmm. introduce NPCs that um you know, the it gives the players a little bit of narrative control to introduce those elements, mm-hmm. um, which is rare in D D. And then you've got crafting and the gist of crafting is that it takes forever unless you collaborate. But I think that makes sense for NPCs. So I think this is basically a way to show how NPC artisans can make money. Like, for example, uh, I think it's like the better part of a year for one person trained in Smith's tools to create a non-magical suit of plate armor. But if you have an entire team of people working on it, which you can do with something like plate armor, you could do it in like six weeks. 
Yeah. And I think that's reasonable for a custom suit of armor. Right. But then you also have rules for crafting magic items. Those usually involve some kind of quests. There are charts for what CR a creature you need to encounter, whether that's killing that creature and taking a part of it or bargaining with it or um, dealing with it as a guard of, of whatever object you need to create this magic item. And you got to spend time in gold. It's pretty reasonable at low levels. Like you can get an uncommon magic item in two weeks for 200 gold pieces and, you know, your little quest, which I think is absolutely reasonable for something like an amulet that gives you a constitution of 19. Mm, yeah, I, that's fair. I mean, but it's an entire year and 100,000 gold pieces for a legendary item. Which seems very light, to be honest. And also hand-wavy. Yeah. You know, because who's taking a year off right. from your game? Yeah, why not 10 years at that point? Yeah. Right? Or 100 years. Like, what's the difference other than humans aren't doing it? Which is fine. Humans never make this stuff. <laughs> Plus, uh, there's a bunch of complications. Uh, really, it just encourages you to collaborate with other people to make this as quickly as possible because the number of complications increases by the amount of time you take to make something. Then there's uh, options for crime and gambling and pit fighting. I, I like the pit fighting rules. Those are fun. You make three checks, and you can replace one of those checks with an attack roll and, you know, make a few hundred gold pieces. Yeah, I mean, that's one of the things that we do a lot when abstracting out in 5th edition, like kind of going back to the um, skill challenges, is like every once in a while it's like, Okay, just make an attack. Yeah. <laughs> like, uh -huh. Your skill is you hit something hard. There are rules for relaxing, uh, for spending time working for a church, which can earn you a few favors that you can cash in later. Research, which I'm glad we have these rules, but all it really is is make a check and then you learn one, two, or three pieces of lore. Well, make a check and spend some gold. Yeah. <laughs> and plus complications. Right. <laughs> And then they're scribing spell scrolls, which is, I don't know if it's broken, but it's rules for scribing all the way up to ninth level spells. Uh, I don't know why anyone who can cast spells isn't scribing spell scrolls in all of their downtime. Because it's 25 gold pieces and one day of work to scribe a first level spell, which basically means you can carry around as many scrolls as you want it, it, like, this is better than a ring of spell storing. Yeah, yeah, for sure. There's also rules for selling a magic item, which, okay. Uh, now, we're, now we're putting prices to things in our magic items, which uh, I thought we were trying to avoid. It's also a charisma persuasion check, which I, I don't know. There's some pretty, like, uninteresting, ugly people who can sell things just fine. Right. Um, then we have training. I don't know if this is problematic. Because you spend golden time and learn a language or a tool proficiency. Yeah. Like, you should just do that for every language and every tool proficiency with your downtime. Well, I think you have to find uh, somebody to teach you, right? But still, yeah, I mean, I like that there's other ways to gain languages because languages are a really, really dumb limiting factor otherwise. Mm -hmm. uh, tool proficiencies, you know, I, I don't care that much. I mean, it does mean our polyglot can now learn... Every Officially, language. every yeah. single language, yeah. 
Uh, there's also just work, which <laughs> is for suckers. No. <laughs> and then complications for work. Yeah. Uh, that's a 10% chance of work getting complicated, which I assure you is significantly <laughs> higher in the real world. <laughs> then we got a big old section on awarding those magic items. Uh, we get two new categories for magic items, minor and major, which didn't exist before, doesn't exist in the DMG. We get a whole bunch of charts on what previous magic items fall into which of those categories, and it basically just says, oh, you know, it's based on the table in the Dungeon Master's Guide that you would roll on. That's what tells you if it's minor or major. Um, okay, but there's... Well, alright. Yeah, well, that's useful information, because there's a chart a little bit later that tells you exactly how many magic items a party should be getting over the course of a 20-level campaign. Spoiler, it's 100. Which seems okay, I guess, right? A party of four characters gets 25 magic items. Like, if you if you include consumables, that doesn't seem obscene. We'll also think a lot of those you're going to throw away or sell because they're not useful anymore, and you're still limited by three things that you can attune to. Right, exactly. It also gives you a chart on exactly how many magic items of each rarity your party should be getting at each tier of play. And it basically says, use this as a budget. Every time you hand out a magic item, like reduce one of these numbers by one, and eventually you're going to get to 100. It seems awfully specific for something that was super vague in the Dungeon Master's Guide. Right. Um, And one that seems to be partially ignored in the character rules. Right, given all the ways to get magical items or you know, get make your mundane items able to overcome magic resistance. Right. And also, okay, are we supposed to get a hundred magic items over the course of a campaign, or are magic items not built into the math of the system? Which is it? And yeah. and if it's both, then so every normal party is going to be breaking the math. Right. Um, I will say the final outcomes of you know, for a party of four, you get four rares, four very rares, four legendaries, eight uncommon items uh, amongst the majors. That seems fine. I think that's probably about where we landed in Morning Glory. Mm-hmm. Um, when you get to the miners, though, it's insanely inflated. Seven more legendaries for the party and 15 very rare items for the party. Like, I get the major and minor split, but if if a single party can get 11 legendary items, they're not legends. <laughs> right? Like that... if you can't win with 11 legendary items. <laughs> yeah, who are you? <laughs> All right, so the complete opposite of legendary items are a list of common magic items. They come right out and say, "Yeah, it was a bit of an oversight in the dungeon master's guide that we started at uncommon and you don't really have any common magic items and now we're telling you to give some out." We got one. Healing potion. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'm going to call out just a few of these cuz uh, most of these are like, "Oh, it's a it's a cloak that billows on command." I mean, that's cool, I guess. But there are things that really do have mechanical benefits, like the Clockwork Amulet, once a day, take 10 on an attack roll. Yeah, the Boots of False Tracks. You can leave tracks like a real person or like a (laughs) humanoid of your choice. (laughs) Uh, There are a couple different items that let spellcasters use it as a spellcasting focus without having to you know, use up a hand slot. The Ursat's Eye is an, an augmented eye. 
you replace your eye with a magic eye. I love it. Yeah. I mean, you have to attune to it. <laughs> I don't love that. <laughs> um, some of these seem a little broken. There's the mystery key, which, according to the write-up, has a 5% chance of unlocking literally any lock you put it into before disappearing. Every adventurer needs to get a mystery key. Or, like, a ring of mystery keys. Yeah, exactly. You know, why don't you, aren't you just walking around with mystery keys? That, nope. Nope, nope, yep. nope, but it didn't work. I still have it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, the pot of awakening, uh, if you plant something in it, 30 days later you get an awakened shrub, and it, you know, follow. it does what you tell it to do. So I'm just going to create an army of awakened shrubs. I like absent <laughs> commands from you. It does nothing. <laughs> it, it just sits there. It's, then it's, it's a sleepy shrub. I have a forest that can rise at my command. Um, I like the staff of flowers. It's got 10 charges and it can use the charge to plant a flower. <laughs> the tankard of sobriety. This could actually be useful. Any alcoholic beverages that you're drinking out of it don't intoxicate you. I love the idea of an NPC cheating in a drinking contest. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Right. And like, and exposing <laughs> the fraud kind of thing. Like, that would be a, going along with downtime. Like, that would be a fun complication. Totally. And then the unbreakable era. I mean, just get a bunch of these and then you have a hundred percent chance of recovering them at the end of every combat. If like, you're really concerned about how many arrows you've got. No, I, I mean, that actually has other issues, right? If you bury an arrow into a wall, you can now step on it and create stairs. Works for me. Uh, it's, it's like the poor man's immovable rods or the very wealthy man's pitons. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So, I, yeah, I mean, like some of these are, they're meant to not be exploitable. Mm -hmm. Some of them are. So you you would need to put kind of a firm foot down. Yeah. The Wand of Scowls, three charges, uh, has to make a DC 10 charisma saving throw or be forced to scowl for one minute. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, these are fun. Um, I think they were worth it. Yeah, I'm fine with these three pages. And then the last section of the book is new spells. Well, new-ish spells, right? Because we get pretty much all of the spells from the Elemental Evil Player's Companion that was released as a free PDF. So actually, probably more than half the spells in this book aren't new. But it doesn't mean that if you're playing Adventurers League, you can now use these much more easily. I will say Druid, Sorcerer, Warlock, and Wizard make out very well because they all get a whole bunch of spells, although most of, the, of that is because they are elemental evil spells. Right. Which were not on the whole particularly powerful. Yeah, there were a few like absorb elements that became staples, but for the most part it was like, oh, it does a slightly different damage type, but a little less damage than Fireball. Some of these spells, though, do really interesting things, like the third level enchantment spell, Catnap which puts three willing creatures to sleep for 10 minutes, and then they wake up having short rested. So there you go. There's your 10-minute short rests. I'm really happy to see the return of the ceremony spell, which had showed up in Unearthed Arcana. Is it powerful? No. Is it flavorful? Oh my god, yes, and it's a ritual, and so why wouldn't anyone who can cast it just have it around? Right. So let's uh let's talk a little bit about some of our favorite spells in here because I I mean I think there's there's good and there's bad and there's mm -hmm. you know useful and flavorful. So what what are some of your favorites? 
So after ceremony, I think there's Dance Macabre, which is, I think, a warlock and a wizard spell. Oh, so that's the one where you get to make corpses dance like marionettes. That's right. So instead of animating dead, you temporarily animate a bunch of dead for the combat and then let them fall. I like that it says uh, they're zombies or skeletons, your choice, which means that if you really want, you can rip the bones out of corpses on the ground and make them dance around for a few minutes. Yeah, I like that. So I like Fine Greater Steed. Uh, it is finally a way to get a Pegasus as a mount. Mm-hmm. Though, as you pointed out, every bard will have a beautiful Pegasus and every paladin will be longing for one. Right, until level whatever, 17 when they get 5th level spells. 4th level spells, yeah. <laughs> okay, okay. Um, I love the Druid Grove spell, which does exactly what it says it does. It's sort of like Guards and Wards, but for a Druid's Glade. Um And it introduces the mechanic that we see with a few other spells in this book, which is if you cast it every day for a year, it becomes permanent. Now, that's a thing that's very complicated to do when you're an adventurer, but it gives uh, an additional use or sort of perk for the spell if you're using it in downtime or even, you know, in an epilogue. Mm -hmm. Rangers and Druids both get Guardian of Nature, which has two options that I think honestly you're probably going to want to figure out how to put on a different kind of character you can turn into a primal beast which gives you advantage on strength attack rolls and uh, melee weapon attacks deal an extra d6 force damage or you can turn into a big tree which gives you advantage on con saving throws and advantage on dexterity and wisdom attack rolls which of course includes a lot of different spells Holy Weapon seems like another one that bards are definitely going to poach. Yeah, I mean, that one's concentration, though, so it's a little bit limited for melee. But with the um, Oath of Redemption, I, I, I'm i just realizing, like, you can use that to siphon damage away from uh, casters for concentrating, mm-hmm. which makes you super valuable, right? Like, now that Polymorph stays up, now that Haste stays up, now that Holy Weapon stays up. Yeah, it seems like there's a fair amount of uh, party combo in this book. You know, a, a grave cleric helping someone else deal a bunch of damage, a redemption cleric helping everyone else stay up, an ancestral um, barbarian protecting everyone else. Yeah. Uh, we do get new ninth level spells, like just straight up invulnerability. <laughs> or a mass polymorph or a psychic scream. Mm-hmm. Invulnerability is certainly not a misnomer. Uh, you are immune to all damage until the spell ends, which is concentration up to 10 minutes. But you're not taking any damage, so you're not making those concentration checks. Yeah, you just can't cast another concentration spell. Great, but I'm also standing in lava. <laughs> <laughs> um, psychic scream is uh, is nice. You have... Um, up to 10 creatures taking uh, an intelligence saving throw and 14d6 psychic damage and stun. Um, you take half on a successful save. My favorite part about that spell is if you kill a target with it, its head explodes. Yep. <laughs> My favorite part is that creatures with an intelligence of two or less are unaffected. <laughs> What's that sound? What's that? Huh? Hmm? Hey, that guy's head exploded. <laughs> It means that after you mass polymorph your party into dumb, dumb creatures. Into dumb, dumb T-Rexes. That's right. You can psychic scream and they'll be unaffected. Well, I mean, you could just not choose them. 
No, you should definitely choose. Yeah, them. right. <laughs> I got ten slots, and I'm using them. There's the skill empowerment spell, which is I think the first time we've really seen a spell that so obviously interacts with game mechanics. Yeah, it just gives you expertise. Yeah, for up to an hour. Uh, and then two cantrips. I want to call out this Primal Savagery, which gives Druids a pretty great melee spell option. Although, weirdly, it's acid damage, and I think not whatever piercing or slashing that it was in Unearthed Arcana. Yeah. And then Toll the Dead, which does a fine amount of damage, a D8 damage, uh, unless the creature is not at full hit points, in which case it does a D12 damage, which is a lot, but also it's necrotic damage, uh, and it's a saving throw, not an attack roll. Yep. And then uh, our good friend Tensor gets another spell in this book. He's back. Back from Greyhawk. But uh, it, it's basically just a transmutation spell that gives you um, a bunch of benefits. <laughs> yeah, it, it turns you into a killing machine. Although, unlike the old school Tensor's transformation, which wizards would cast on themselves and be like, I am a melee god. Really, this enhances your martial prowess. So it's better for a wizard to cast it on someone who's already a melee combatant and just make them amazing yeah it, it gives you temp hp advantage on attack rolls extra damage um as well as uh, proficiency in strength and con saves and then um it gives you extra attack if you don't already have it so it works well for casters or melee but then afterward you've got a dc 15 constitution saving throw or you suffer a level of exhaustion although if you're doing it right you're probably good at con saving throws as a caster right Hey, now we're into appendices. So the first appendix is shared campaigns, and this is basically how to run your own adventures league in a page and a half. Yeah, my guess is it's actually um, a thinly veiled advertisement for adventures league. Right. It explains the code of conduct, which really should be like at the top of pretty much every D and D book, and not <laughs> yeah, buried exactly. in an appendix. Right. Uh, and then it tells you how to hand out experience points, gold, and items, which, honestly, I don't know why this isn't in, like, an alternate way of leveling up section rather than all the way down here. Yeah, yep. Then Appendix B is long lists of character names, both by, like, fantasy race as well as real-world culture. Cool, fun. Um, I don't know why it wasn't just a free PDF. I Yeah, I mean fantasy name generator.com right like mm -hmm. i didn't need to pay for 20 pages of this right all right so that's the book at first i was thinking uh i don't know if this is something that you really need unless you're playing a pact of the blade warlock um, yeah, there are absolutely some interesting things in here. There's some cool new spells, really cool warlock invocations. A couple of the subclasses seem like they're going to be strong and interesting or flavorful. At the same time, this would probably be the third or fourth book I would tell people to buy in order if you're trying to like fill out your collection of D&D 5th &D edition source books. So PHB, mm -hmm. Monster Manual, then either this or Volo's Guide depending on whether you're primarily a player or a DM. Yeah, exactly. Because I think Sword Coast Adventures Guide was good. It's just less necessary. Right. But yeah, this I liked Volo's Guide better than I like this book. I, I did too, but that's because... I mean, it's a different beast. Right. I mean, it, it has useful DM content, 
that is interesting and flavorful. And it's the kind of book where I will pull it off the shelf to look up the things I need to know. Mm-hmm. Um, I, honest to God, cannot imagine looking at Xanathar's again until I need to pull out my class features. Like I, the DM stuff, I'll never look at. I don't need it. I would in honestly like a, a fun game you know oh downtime that's that's interesting to consider as a player yeah i'll use the first section and i am sure as hell gonna min max those tool proficiencies <laughs> yeah i kind of <laughs> deliberately avoid that i mean the the character generation part there the the pseudo life path thing like that part i would look at again mm-hmm. but again you use that you know, once per character, once per campaign, really. And probably is content that exists again somewhere, a Google search away. Right. Um, which I think is basically the entire book, aside from the subclasses, is content that exists a Google away. Mm-hmm. And let's be clear, many of the subclasses are not very good. No. Some, some are just demonstrably worse than options already in the PHP. Yep. Others are kind of muddled and complicated, and then they'll be fine and then just have one garbage feature that make it not worth taking. Right. But let me put it this way. So you currently have a copy of the book in your hands with the special cover. You paid dollars for it? $50. How do you feel about that purchase? I feel like I had no choice. Hmm. I had to buy this book. Not just to review it, but because, like... There's so few D and D books that I just I just pay fifty dollars a year to re up my subscription to D and D. Right. That's the other thing is like if you're gonna only buy one book, it's fine if it's this one. Right. You know, um, especially if D and D is the only game that you actually are playing. Yeah, I, that's the thing. If you play D and D five e, you should buy this book. Um, well, look, let me say if you. Play D and D five E and collect the books. You should buy this book. Mm-hmm. You won't. You won't be disappointed that you bought the book, right? Um, but it's not a good book. Like it's just it's filler. Um, in a way that like even Sword Coast Adventures Guide for all I will not use any of that lore. At least it was lore, you know. Like at least it was interesting information to read. Like this book isn't really even readable. I think we're going to end up getting about the same amount of like subclass content that will be useful out of this book than we got out of Sword Coast Adventures Guide. And Sword Coast Adventures Guide only had like eight subclasses in it. Yeah, it was just full of bangers. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, so I'm I'm not thrilled with the book, but I think I still have to recommend you buy it if you want to play D&D 5e. Um, there, are, the couple cool classes in here are are probably worth just paying the fifty dollars for, and the art, I guess, is worth or, it. Or have someone in your gaming group buy it. Yeah. Um, if you are paying playing a Pack of the Blade Warlock, uh, if I'd say if you are a primary spellcaster, the new spells in it are probably worth something to you. Yeah. But if you're a GM, like just a lot of this content could have been gotten somewhere else it does really feel like they took many of the unearthed arcanas and were like hey we can make a book out of this frankly the unearthed arcanas didn't go away go pull down the traps and go pull down the downtime activities and you have all the useful dm content Mm -hmm. and and those are great sections i love those sections but Mm -hmm. i love them as unearthed arcana yeah and absolutely ignore uh any unearthed arcana subclasses that showed up previously right it's not in this book pretend it's dead uh and don't use the old versions. Right. I'll issue a 
qualified by recommendation here. I think it makes me more concerned for the overall state of 5th edition because I'm now seeing some warts on the general design pattern that I didn't see before. Uh, namely, I already talked about it, short rests as a mechanic is a bust for me. Um, too many subclasses are limited by not being their subclass half the time. Yeah, and it's unfortunate that that was an original design conceit baked into the concept of the game. Yeah. And I think in practice, we just sort of end up ignoring that for the most part. Like, okay, I want this to be a really tough encounter, so I'm not going to give you a short rest ahead of time. But I'm also going to make it, like, short and brutal. Right. Because we don't want to spend all this time not being able to use class features. Right, right. Um, and then the other part of it is just that subclasses don't actually give you that much room to design, it turns out. You know, four or five abilities. Yeah, especially depending on on the class. Some classes are some subclasses are meatier than others, depending on how much you get from the original class. Yeah, but like you get everything out of the rogue base. It doesn't really matter what you're getting from the rogue subclass. All, all you're getting is another way of triggering your sneak attack, mm-hmm. or you're getting an unplayable rogue. Like those are the two options, right? Right. Or you're staring at it and going, uh, "This is fine, but man, I wish I was a swashbuckler." Right. Um. And that's a my general feeling now is is that what was in the PHB felt very robust because they took the two or three sort of archetypes for each class. So the melee and the ranged, or the magic and the martial, right? They they made those splits, and sometimes they did hybrids that didn't work, like the um, four elements monk is garbage, right? The mm-hmm. wild magic sorcerer mostly garbage. Mm-hmm. Um, some of the cleric domains that's okay um these either have like third level abilities basically like your intro to the class ability that make it super good and different and therefore probably going to break it through multi-classing or they're trash and they're just worse than what's in the php and they're never going to get the flavor that you're looking for in that because there just simply isn't enough space to build that flavor. So I can't get a flavorful class that isn't powerful. I just get super powerful classes or unplayable classes. That's a problem with the, with the framework of fifth edition. See, I think there is enough room to design. They just didn't. Well, I'm, I'm disappointed that this is the fourth book that we're getting when it feels like the 30th book from 3.5 well they have no designers on staff jeremy crawford had you know 25 consultants helping him build fifth edition in the first place Mm -hmm. like maybe they aren't good at designing games i don't know yeah it's disappointing i gotta be honest like i am i'm super bummed about it i think i'm more hopeful about the game than you are at this point i will i will say though if you can get someone to buy this book for you, like as a gift for Christmas, like do that. <laughs> You're not going to be sad about being given this book. Yeah. Yeah. I, man, one book a year. And this was it. Yeah. This is it. You I know? know, like I, I understood when you had, uh, books coming out every other month. And like, if you miss one because it wasn't a great book, fine. There's other books, but like we get one book and this was it. And a lot of this content was already workshopped. Yeah. Like they got feedback, they got a bunch of surveys and then either didn't change much or changed the wrong things. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. It's, it's frustrating. 
All right, so sorry to be a bit of a downer. Um, I guess that's a tentative buy, depending on who you are. Um, but yeah, if you're not a book collector, if you're not going to play some of these classes, you it will be fine if you leaf through the copy from someone else at your gaming table. Yeah. Though, one big caveat, because I just went on the I, I hate it rant, right? Uh, there are a couple classes in here that I definitely want to play and a couple that I definitely want to incorporate into multi-class and some great options that are available to us now to use for the character creation forge. Mm -hmm. So for us, it actually gives us a lot to use, but we're a very strange edge case. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, We interact with the rules in a very different way from most people. Maybe in a couple years we can get like a D and D best of character creation options. And just, you know, the 20 best subclasses from all of the previous books. Right. <laughs> D&D's Greatest Hits, 5th edition. Right. Just the ones you use. <laughs> Sounds like a new Patreon goal. <laughs> all right. Let's talk about how our listeners can get in contact with us. We do love hearing from you. You can tweet at Shane, at Mundangerous. That's M-U-N Dangerous. And you can tweet at Ishan, at Evil Sans Carne. That's Malice Minus Meat. And you can tweet at the show, at TPTCast. You can also email us at TotalPartyThrill at gmail.com. And you can find us on the web at www.totalpartythrillcast.com. We're also on Facebook and Instagram at Total Party Thrill. So before we get out of here, I know this is a super long episode, but uh, before we wrap up, we just want to take a moment and say thank you to our Patreon supporters. Yeah, your support is what makes it possible for us to keep doing this show every single week. So if you want to learn more, you can check out our rewards at patreon.com slash totalpartythrill. And just a, another thank you to our patrons for supporting us uh, up to $200. We have got the Character Creation Forge Codex because of you. And next episode, we will have a new Character Creation Forge build. So what do we have planned for next week's episode? We'll be talking about campaign epilogues. And in the Character Creation Forge? We're building The Last Man Standing. Well, that's it for episode 120 of Total Party Thrill. I hope we lived up to our name, but either way, I'm Shane. And I'm Ishan. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.